This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, February the 9th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams is producing this. Come on with an edition of the program. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So helpful reminder from someone out of the CBS area. So last week was extremely cold, and of course, the rinks on the ponds were packed every day, and the ice was absolutely safe. Now with some milder temperatures and a little bit of rain, very likely that the ice is not safe any longer. So be very, very careful, whether it be with ice fishing or going for a skate or trying to traverse across the pond to cut some of your walking distance out. Maybe you've got to be very, very cautious today. So the one picture we sent along was Lawrence Pond in CBS. Last week, exactly that. The rink was full and now open water. So there you go. All right, Maggie Connors and Team Canada back at it tonight in the rivalry series against the United States, coming off a 4-2 win. The game tonight is in Regina, so good luck to Maggie and the club. And we think maybe Alex Lohook is going to make his return after almost three months off after a high ankle sprain. But the Montreal Canadiens, they're hosting Dallas tomorrow, or they're playing Dallas tomorrow. So hopefully he's in that lineup. Big win last night for the Growlers. 3-2 in overtime. Tate Singleton with the winner. Uh, playing against the Greenville Swamp Rabbits. How's that for a team moniker? So they're the number one team in the league, so that's a big victory for the Growlers, and they're back at it tonight. All right, so we know Six Nations rugby is happening again this weekend. Dave Williams being the big football fan, looking forward to the Super Bowl. Uh, San Francisco versus Kansas City. A couple of numbers that Dave has thrown my way. One, a private suite at the game, which is in Las Vegas, is $2.5 million for the game. Curiously, with the $2.5 million, there is a bar in the suite, but it's not an open bar, it's a cash bar. So you've got to pay for your drinks on top of the $2.5 million. That's really quite something. And they predict the Poultry Association in the United States that Americans alone will consume 1.5 million chicken wings this weekend. Or no, 1.5 billion chicken wings this weekend. Yeah, how about that? All right, do you know who Summer McIntosh is? Dave probably does. Well, if you don't know now, you will very soon. She's a 17-year-old swimmer, and she is absolute rocket in the pool. So this past weekend at the Orlando Southern Zone Southern Sectional Championships, that's a mouthful, Summer McIntosh has got a bunch of national records already. She's won a world championship, and now she does not focus on the 800-meter swim, the freestyle, but she competed in it this past weekend, and she won against the legend American Katie Ledecky. Ledeck, she beat her by six seconds. They were virtually tied after 200 meters, and then she goes out and beat her by six full seconds. Now, this is notable for a bunch of reasons. That time would have won the gold medal in the past Tokyo Olympics. It's the second fastest time ever in the 800 uh, this year. But get a load of this. Katie Ledecky has the 30th, 30th, uh, pardon me, has the 30 fastest times in history in the 800 meter. And now McIntosh has cracked into that. She's got the 17th fastest time, but Ledecky still has the 16th fastest time. And the 17-year-old beat her just this week in the 800 meter freestyle. They're both sitting out the world championships because they're too close to the Paris Olympics. But 17-year-old Katie, or pardon me, Summer McIntosh, absolutely brilliant stuff. A bunch of our big swimmers aren't going to the worlds, as a matter of fact. All right, uh, let's see here. Let's go. Let's talk healthcare for a second. 
So I was sent a private message regarding the obstetrics unit that's supposed to be back in Gander. A couple of things about that. So here's the note. I'll read it uh, verbatim. It's been almost one year since the announcement made by Minister Osborne regarding the opening of the obstetrics unit at the hospital in Gander. This is a letter we sent to government and CEO of NL Health Services on February 7, 2024. It basically goes on to say they have hired a new OBGYN. They have got the nurses trained. We know the physical space is available, but yet a year later and the obstetrics unit is not up and running. They've got a demonstration plan for the 23rd of this month at the hospital from 12 to 1. Auto welcome to attend now good enough for the folks in gander hopefully you get what you were promised but you wonder how closely the government is going to operate based on recommendations done by the folks whether it be uh, uh, sister elizabeth davis or dr patrick parfrey and all their subcommittee members inside the health accord the 10-year roadmap it does say in that document that the one obstetrics unit in uh, central would be in grand falls windsor but the government based on the pressure that was brought to bear have decided there's going to be a unit in gfw and in gander so we'll see how that proceeds and regarding the health accord you know, we, we talk endlessly about recruitment and retention and all the different disciplines and the shortages and the wait times. He wonder what kind of action governments put down regarding the social determinants of health, because that was the linchpin of the entire document. It's not just about bolstering services. It's trying to make us a little bit more healthy. But, you know, the basics of the social determinants of health are economic stability. Poverty plays an enormous role in your interaction with the healthcare system. Education access, quality of education, healthcare access quality of health care, neighborhood and built environments, social and community context. So what can government point to, like specifics, as to what they've done to address the key to the health accord was the social determinants of health. So anyway, let's keep going. All right. This is a review of a contract that was let, I think, in June of 2020. It got some attention at the time, but very little uh, since. And it'd be nice to get a status update. So the contract that was entered in with Change Healthcare Canada, a six-year contract. So this was about building software that involves healthcare scheduling and collaborating with health authorities on, quote, improved operational efficiency and anticipated cost savings. So they're talking about reducing staffing costs, overtime, sick time, payroll errors, and time-keeping labor. Here's where it gets a bit tricky, and it did get some condemnation coming from opposition members uh, at the time. So it is an extremely lucrative contract. So the more savings that change healthcare helps find, the more money it makes, up to $35 million over the course of the deal. So the government says it's not about cutting spending, but to avoid staff burnout. Okay. Now, there was no consultation, apparently. There was no public announcement before or after the deal was done. There was a $3 million upfront payment to change healthcare to begin months of preparation prior to the five-year operational side of the deal kicking in. So... This, it goes on. This is really quite something. The deal also says that the health authorities will have to cover sales tax and fees for any work Change Healthcare does beyond the contract's original scope. Where are we? We have no idea. The authorities will also have to pay up to $5 million in penalties if they don't achieve 95% adoption of the program within the organizations. So this is back when we had all the different regional health authorities, but now, of course, all in under one umbrella at NL Health, Author- NL health Services. So it'd be great to get a, sat- a status update. So there's a bunch more questions that we have for Minister Osborne, and we'll put this one on the, on the table because I haven't heard a peep in years about this. Signed back in June 2020, inside a six-year contract, you would think we'd have some sort of progress update, a status update regarding any recommendations made and implementation of because, again, if we don't implement 95% of the, progr- of the uh, recommendations from this group, then there's going to have to be a $5 million penalty. The more we save, the more they make. 
all sounds pretty bizarre to me, but there was a status update required on that contract. Do you even remember that happening? It caught some attention. But of course, what happened back in 2020 also? Well, you know what? <laughs> Where we are in the status of the pandemic or endemic or wherever we are, I have no idea. But that one, that's a big one, and we're going to follow up. Now, this is terrible news. If you listen to the show all the time, and I know you do, many, many times when someone would call with mental health-related matters and maybe need someone to talk to today while they're on a wait list to see a healthcare professional face-to-face in the province, I've given out the number to Wellness Together countless times. It was launched in April of 2020. Of course, it was a pandemic response funded by Health Canada. Four million people have availed of wellness together and pocket well services, I should add. Four million people free virtual mental health and substance use health resources. Here's the problem. So four million Canadians have been helped. As of April the 3rd, this will no longer be available. So while the numbers that we've been using, one in five Canadians with a mental health concern, now we say one in four, we see the numbers regarding people's stressors and what that means for their mental well-being, mental illnesses, crisis. We know what the numbers are regarding substance abuse in the country. And yet this extremely helpful. Virtually every time that I put someone onto wellness together, they've gotten back to me saying, thank you, that has really helped because it's 24-7, 365, someone on the other end available to help you. And now all of a sudden, and here we are, with inflation and cost of living and substance abuse numbers going absolutely skyrocketing, mental illness certainly seems to have grown. Certainly people's anxiety and worries have certainly not been waned with cost of living and inflation and shrinkflation and coming out of a global pandemic. And yet Health Canada, through the government of Canada, decides that that service is no longer required. Now, yes, some helpful things have happened. You know, 988 has been created. But not always, you know, if people, we talk about continuity of care. If you've been able to have some successes with wellness together, in addition to 988, which is a crisis line, it's a suicide prevention helpline. It's not an ongoing opportunity for a counselor. But through some decision making, somewhere in Ottawa, someone thought that this 4 million Canadian used platform is no longer necessary. Can't for the life of me understand how that has been arrived at. But here we are, and if you'd like to chime in on any of those Related matters, please do exactly that. This morning, all right, let's keep going. From the courts, we talk about substance abuse. Okay, so Joshua Burt, he learned his fate yesterday inside a packed courtroom here in the city of St. John's. He, of course, was responsible for colliding with Brad Caravan and his Ford F-150. His alcohol, blood alcohol level, two and a half times above the legal limit, going almost 130 kilometers an hour in the wrong direction. Strikes Mr. Caravan. Caravan is dead. Bert has been sentenced to three years and three months in prison. Okay, so look, and I heard Brian Callahan speaking with Ben Murphy this morning, and he said, you know, he can't really compare case to case, drunk driving cases or drunk driving causing death cases. I get it. There will be different things to consider. And, you know, people have made the relationship between a sentence of three years for someone who caught a heritage property on fire. So there's no direct comparison. But someone set a house on fire. No one got hurt. Three years in prison. A guy fights with his girlfriend or his buddies downtown, hops in his truck, is going hell-bent for leather, and navigates roundabout, ends up going the wrong way, strikes and kills a man. There's a person dead. Three years and three months in prison just does not seem like any justice being served. Now, 
Burke pled guilty, which of course leads to a lesser sentence. The guidelines are generally between two years and seven years, as says Mr. Callahan, who follows the courts quite closely. Quite closely, there is a maximum sentence for drunk driving causing death of life in prison. So things like an additional five-year ban from driving. Look, I'm glad I'm not a judge. But sometimes it really does feel like the punishment does not suit the crime. There's a man dead. There's a young boy without a dad. Sisters without a brother. Mothers without a son. Grandparents without a grandson. All because of one drunk driver going absolutely haywire on the highway, and this is the end result. So... I know you can't compare case to case. I think Mr. Callahan is 100% right, but this does not, does not feel like there was justice served in this particular case. And nor has there been in other similar cases in the past with drunk driving and drunk driving causing death. So anyway, you want to take it on. And stick with substance abuse for a minute. And oftentimes, too many or so many or far too many people, in my opinion, don't care about what is an absolute crisis in the country, and that's overdosing. The toxic drugs on the street are killing people. I don't really know why anyone is willing to turn a blind eye. It's easy enough to say, well, just don't do drugs. You know, what happened when Nancy Reagan said, just say no? Nothing changed. It got worse. Drug use is up in Canada and the United States. And the type of drugs people are using and abusing and addicted to. So it's easy enough to say don't use it, but addiction is a physiological issue that is easier said than done to overcome. In Belleville, Ontario, this week, in one day... One day only, there was 23 overdoses. 23 overdoses in one day. And why? Because of the type of drugs that are being taken here. You know, people aren't taking some of these drugs thinking that they're going to get an animal tranquilizer. So for 23 overdoses in one day in one community in Canada, doesn't that really sound off the alarm bells here? I don't pretend to think that there's a simple solution to these complicated issues. But if that's the type of drugs that are on the street... And unbeknownst to people, they're taking something that's going to drop them dead where they stand, which is not generally how things like drug use works. It's risky. We know what fentanyl can do to somebody. You know, what is it, a thousand times more deadly than heroin? So I get it, why people are willing to turn a blind eye, but goodness gracious, there's a story from Belleville where just standing outside a church where there was a quote-unquote soup kitchen, within three or four seconds of each other, five people standing out that, outside that church, bang, on the ground, overdosed. So there's a huge problem with the type of supply on the street, and no one's justifying or encouraging or dismissing or apologizing for people who are using illicit drugs, but it's real, it's happening, and to just turn a blind eye to it probably doesn't sound like a very good idea to me. How about you? All right, sticking with... Oh, no, we'll move on. Newfoundland Power heard this in the news to warn people there's a scam making the rounds. There's always a scam making the rounds. So someone's calling saying that they're representing Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. They want your credit card information or they're going to cut your power. Hydro doesn't do that. If you get that call, hang up and call the police. Also, in this past week, I've probably got 50 emails... From people saying, for some unknown reason, with the exact same uh, behavior of power consumption in the home and the same number of people living in the home, that their power bills are out of whack. I don't know exactly why that would be the case, but when 50 people inside of five days send me a very similar story or note, they asked me to put it out there, and so I will. And if you're one of those folks and you want to bring forward your concerns, let's try that this morning. All right. 
So, and inside the world of powering your home. So the Canada Greener Homes Grant, done. After February 19th, no more applications will be accepted. They ran out of money. So it was brought forward not that long ago. It was launched in 2021. They said it would last for some seven years. 165,000 grants later, then they're out of money. So, you know, it has been very helpful to get back some of your hard-earned money that you paid in taxes back in your own pocket to do things like improve the efficiency of your home, which consequently brings on lower heating bills for years to come, this has been a good program. Add to it the number of folks who are trained up to be energy auditors and people who have businesses that have grown exponentially because of some pockets of money. So whether you think that's artificial growth and should not be the reliance of one industry or one sector of the economy or another, the fact of the matter is so many people have been employed in exactly this facet. And now, after February 19th, you have to believe their business is going to be slashed and uh, probably devastatingly so. So the Canada Greener Homes Grant also gone when we talk about powering your home. Many people still talking about, and rightfully so, the redfish allocation that the province is getting, some 19% of it. There was a protest held in Cornerbrook yesterday. One fellow got up to the microphone and said, who's going to lose their business, their enterprise, because of the allocation of redfish? As we're told, every single hand shot up. This is not just for folks directly or indirectly involved in the fishery. We're talking about communities, right? So there's 30 or 40 boats ready to go. They were hoping for an allocation. Of course, everybody wants what they want when they want it, similar to this province and in Nova Scotia. If we were given more, and I wish we were given more, you know, like Minister of Fisheries uh, Provincially, Elvis Lovelace said, you know, they were hoping for at least 30%. I've heard other members of the FFAW and harvesters on the south coast, the west coast, and the northern peninsula talking about 50%. So... Currently, as it stands at 19, it's not going to be enough to keep the wolf away from the door. So anything inside that fisheries world, we're also up for it. Now, a couple of stories that, once again, we've had a, one person, Colin in particular, of course, keeping an eye on the courts. So Cameron Ortiz. So an Ontario Superior Court has sentenced Cameron Ortiz, who was a former RCMP intelligence, intelligence official, found guilty late last year for leaking secret information to the police, or police targets, pardon me. So it was the first time charges were filed under the Security of Information Act. So he has now been sent- sentenced. 14 years in prison. The Crown was looking for 28. So they're going to appeal the sentence. Mr. Ortiz's lawyers are going to appeal, saying he was given an unfair crack inside the courtroom because of so many redacted pieces of evidence, what have you. But Cameron Ortiz, spy, sentenced to 14 years in prison. And also on that front, this story made its rounds very, very lightly. There's a former uh, employee at Hydro-Quebec, a guy named Yu Sheng Wang, 35 years old. He was employed by Hydro-Quebec, allegedly obtained trade secrets to benefit the People's Republic of China to the detriment of Canada's economic interest. He's been charged with four espionage-related charges, obtaining trade secrets, unauthorized use of computer, fraud for obtaining trade secrets, and breach of trust by a public officer. So a couple of bad actors in the fold right there. All right, check in with Dave one more time. How are we doing? This is a bit of a lighter note before we move on. The British Invasion, music speaking, came to our shores in 1964. And of course, largely fueled by the Beatles in the beginning. It was 60 years ago today that the Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show before a record-setting audience of Americans who were getting their first look at the Beatles. 73 million people tuned into the Ed Sullivan Show that night. Of course, they all wanted to hear, I want to hold your hand, which was at the top of the charts. So when the Beatles flew into JFK on February the 7th, 5,000 people were standing there waiting for them. For the Beatles' first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show, 
in a 728-seat studio, there was 50,000 ticket requests. They opened up by playing or performing All My Lovin' Till There Was You. They taped two more tunes that day for later broadcasts on The Sullivan Show, Please Please Me, Twist and Shout. So, and uh, Ed Sullivan goes on to say, uh, he was speaking glowingly of their conduct as fine youngsters. On this date, 1964, The Beatles on The Ed Sullivan Show. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great Friday show. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, Bradley. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Uh, the reason I'm calling in this morning, I think I have a long-term solution for the doctor shortage and retention, something I had in my mind for a while. Uh, I wanted to talk about uh, perhaps going into our schools and offering med school to our residents. And uh, I know when I graduated high school, I, I can remember people coming in and they were saying trades, trades, trades. So obviously a lot of the people went into the trades. Now, I know there's obviously some of our uh, graduates that went on to med school and became doctors and nurses and, and whatnot. But I do know that it can, it can be a daunting task to think about your future and going into a lot of debt and or um, uh, applying for med school in the first place. So what I, what I would want to, to touch on is I know like growing up in a rural area that a lot of the doctors that you see they come and they're there, they, they, they punch their time and then they move to uh, a more uh, urban area. They're, they're, they don't stick around, so it's hard to get a family doctor that way. But uh, a point I want to point out is not a lot of families are wealthy and can think about taking on the student loans of becoming a doctor and going to med school. So I would, off, I would think that they should offer residents free tuition and also... Uh, offer um, look at students that are instead of having 90s and 100s in marks in school they should uh, look at students with 70s and 80s because I know when I was in high school I was sick of it I just need to get out but, uh, Isn't that taking a bit of a risk with such a highly coveted seat in a med school because the workload and the mm. balance between uh, whatever else you might be doing in this life and your studies and the competitive nature of it? You know, if someone had a 70 in grade 12, the, you know, for instance, I know some guys who are pretty smart cookies and they didn't do great in school because they, their highest mark sometimes was days absent because they weren't around all the time and they're plenty smart and maybe they could have handled it in med school or engineering school, but there's plenty of people with 70s who might want to be a doctor that probably can't handle the kind of course load uh, that is presented in med school. What do you think? True, true. I agree. I agree 100%. But they could they could offer like a pre-med school course for these types of students. Try it for a year. If you can't make the cut, that's it. Oh, well, they already do because you don't go directly into med school upon graduation from high school. Yeah, I hear you that way, yeah. Um, another thing I, was, I, I had mentioned, uh, I got in my notes here, um, that you know, for these kids that are um, you know uh, growing up in a, a uh, not a wealthy household, that you could get paid to go to school because just these med school programs are long. Like if and you get paid basically the more the higher your marks, the more money they pay you. Now I'm not talking about thousands of dollars, but a few dollars you know to get you going and keep you interested in the program could go a long way. So. I I think I know where you're going. Just let me put this out there in addition to the conversation. There's already huge competition 
for a seat in the med school. So it's not like we're trying to find ways to make sure we can fill up all of the 80 seats. In fact, there are people, even someone who belonged to me, who is as sharp as a tack could not get into the med school. So the competition's there and the money's already there. So how would your suggestion of making it cheaper or free and financial incentives when we don't need people to want to be doctors and go to Munz Med School because we already have them in droves? Well, you got to look at how many how many of these uh, uh, students are local residents. Sixty-five versus, out of uh, eighty. Okay. Yeah, that Thank was you. just we just changed it up a little bit. They added seats to Munns Med School. New Brunswick used to have five seats that they paid for. They relinquished those five, added to ours. So now there's sixty-five out of eighty for for locals. Okay. Which is pretty healthy. Yep. No doubt. Whatever would look, uh, what I will say, Bradley, is there are no bad ideas when, we, when it comes to trying to make sure that uh, we get the type of professionals we need graduating from our schools. Add one more layer to the conversation. I'd like to know just how actively we're recruiting inside, whether it be nursing schools or LPNs or nurse practitioners, social workers, doctors, pharmacists. You know, how actively are we in front of them saying, we have a job for you? Please consider staying. Here's the updated information every quarter or whatever until their final uh, year in school. And then we're on top of them all the time. Email, presentations, individual meetings to say, we have a job for you. So maybe, yeah. just maybe, if we were really aggressive on that front, we'd re- retain more graduates already. Yeah, that would help. Yeah. 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 Someone from Tollingate is more likely to stay in Tollingate if they do grow up there. And, and, and like I said, they're more likely to stay there once they graduate. A hundred percent. And, you know, you, you mentioned that some doctors may indeed take the opportunity to work in a rural part of the country or province and then consequently move off to a more cosmopolitan place with more amenities and the like. That's going to be a trick into the future. I mean, they are just so highly coveted positions. They're so mobile. They're so in demand that, of course, some doctors will say, this is exactly the type of small, sleepy community where I would love to stay my entire life. But many others are probably thinking, I'd like to be closer to the theater or the symphony or the movie theater or the hockey team or whatever it is, the amenities in the cosmopolitan area. That's going to be a struggle across the country. Definitely. Uh, I'd like to touch on nurses before I go. Sure. Uh, right now, they, they, a lot of these nurses, they work, a, um, I don't know what they call this, the split shift or whatever, two days on, two days off, three on, two off, two on, three off type deal. I'm not really uh, sure, to be honest. Yeah, I, I think they try, need to try and get in like a, a longer shift. Like like Newfoundland Labrador is not, um, not no stranger to um, shift work. And I know two weeks on, two weeks off for a nurse might be a little bit overkill, but maybe five days on and five days off could be something that they could look in. That way you got a cross shift so that you you have your staff and once like if you're looking for days off then you have your casual nurses to to cover your full time employees. And that's another thing, like casual nurses make more than uh full-time nurses so like that, that's that's gives them it gives them an incentive if they don't if they can't get the time off then well i'll just go casual and i'll still get my hours anyway and make more money 
Yeah, the, the nursing issue between casual versus permanent and travel nurses, we've got a three-pronged issue. Well, you know, you talked about campaigns for, you know, trades, 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 all of a sudden everyone's in the trades. That's a curious one because, you know, we've had great success when we created an office for women in the trades and some really big campaigns about encouraging women to join the trades. Now, how about this? How about a, ca- a campaign for men to be nurses? Because it's not that long ago that it was a rarity to see a man as a registered nurse on the floor. And now it's becoming more and more common. I think the numbers that I most recently saw was somewhere around 10% of males in registered nursing schools across the country. But what if we aggressively try to encourage men to become nurses? Because the stigma has gone away. It's not a girl's job. It's a job job. It's a healthcare professional job. I think that might be an idea. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, one last point, Patty, before I go. They need to look at getting some daycare in hospitals because nurses work 12-hour shifts and a lot of local daycares cannot take the kids. They have to find alternate means for pick-up and drop-off, and it's just so hard. I'm going through it right now myself with my wife, but that's something that they should add to their uh, – they should definitely look into the hospitals as, as some daycares for nurses and other healthcare professionals. Do I not recall in the very recent past that they launched a program for daycare specifically for healthcare workers? I'll have to go back. I got a lot of stuff. They did. They did. It was it was in certain areas, target areas. Yeah. But uh, I guess it's a start, but it, it definitely need, is needed everywhere. Bradley, I appreciate you making time for the show today. Have a nice weekend. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, fair enough, yeah. Men, men, nurses. I mean, there was a story not that long ago where for the first time ever, a full shift, maybe I'll just say four South B at the Health Sciences Center, all the nurses were men. And I really do think things like labeling, labeling a job, well, that's a man's job or that's a girl's job, for the most part, is a men's job or a women's job, pardon me. You know, things like being a nurse, I don't think people have that type of reaction to that anymore if you are in need of a registered nurse and the registered nurse comes up and it's bob versus jane i don't think people care they just want care right they want good qualified compassionate care let's take a break when we come back Anne wants to talk about the joint assessment clinic at st Clair's. don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number one good morning Anne. you're on the air good morning patty do you recall last week or the week before last, there was a lady on your show talking about bringing her mother to the Joint Assessment Clinic? I do so remember that call, yeah. It was, yeah. It, she painted a real difficult path picture. <laughs> you got that right, and she stirred up the pot. Because I got a call this morning, 9 o'clock, from the Joint Assessment Clinic. This is my second trip. And the last time I was in there, I was in there about three months ago. I got stuck in that elevator. I was there about 15, 20 minutes, banging my hands off, trying to get out. Until somebody from the laundry came along with the laundry cart and heard me and let me out. And they had, they had a job to get the door open. And I got a fright. Finally, when I got to my destination, they put me through all the tests and whatever. My blood pressure was on bust. So they made an appointment for me to come back again. This is the call I got this morning, and that's why my blood pressure was up. And they told me it's going to be another month due to the renovations they're trying to relocate. So, yeah. uh, just you understand so, what I'm telling you? I think so. I'm just going to ask you a question just to make sure I absolutely know what you're talking about. So 
based on the feedback they're getting in person and calls like that lady made to this show, they're actually going to relocate the Joint Assessment Clinic, period, to make it easier to access? Yes. Okay. So that's the good news. But the problem is between now and then, people like yourself are unable to get to the help you need. That's right. Okay. So I do understand what you're saying. Fair enough. Yes. Because anybody with their health and strength cannot maneuver to get over to that clinic. It's too difficult. It sure sounds like it. I mean, even the, the description of the elevator itself, it sounds like one of those freight elevators you see in the back of a hotel. Oh, my dear, I tell you, it's something like it's on the old coil. <laughs> oh, my God, don't be talking. It should never, ever be allowed in the beginning. So, between now and then, is there anywhere else you can go to get whatever you need that would be done at the Joint Assessment Clinic, or everybody just simply has to stand back and wait? No, I got to wait another month, she told me, before I can get a call, and they hopefully get the place renovated to wherever they're going to move to. So, I'm on the list now for four years trying to get my knee done. Okay. So I mean, to another month waiting to get there, to get assessed. So just let the public know what they're aware of. Uh, and fair enough. That's one thing we can put to uh, Mr. Diamond, operationally speaking, or the minister, because it's good that they've heard the feedback from the public that it's just too difficult to get to the clinic, period, especially when we're talking about people who need a joint assessment done, to have to jump through hoops and deal with that kind of elevator and the type of doors and the, the just the amount of time and walking it takes to get there. It just never made sense in the first place. I had no idea because I'd never been to that clinic uh, in the past, so I'm glad you brought it up. I'll put it on my list to speak with the minister about, because even while we're waiting for space, there must be a possibility or a potential for some clinic space in the hospital, whether it be the health sciences or at St. Clair's or at the Waterford or somewhere, to accommodate. Oh my, it's, it's, all I can say, it's awful. It sounds awful. I appreciate your time, Anne. So are you going to be able to tough it out for a month or are you worried? I don't know. I'm definitely not going in there anymore. Okay. Definitely not. Well, I appreciate making time for the program. Hopefully you and other patients who are going to have to be waiting for this month are going to be able to see weather the storm. Yeah, it was their fault. They sent me back because my blood pressure was up. And my blood pressure would not have been up only for that elevator. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Okay. Yep. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome, man. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's keep going. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the program and education coordinator with ACT-NL. That's Melissa Moore. Good morning, Melissa. You're on the air. Patty, how are you? Excellent this morning. How about you? Good, good. And ACT, of course, is the Alliance for the Control of Tobacco. I should spell out that acronym. Okay, so I see you're in the news, and rightfully so. This might sound like a fundamentally dumb question, but even though there is no such thing as a dumb question, there's concerns about the nicotine pouches, and they kind of slipped through the cracks with some of the rules and regulations that are in place about how you display, who can buy things like a nicotine pouch. What is it? I've never seen one. I have actually, yeah. You anybody can go into a gas station or a corner store right now and and see them. Um, they're called Zonic. It is a product from Imperial Tobacco that they have created to. They're saying it's a cessation aid. They're saying it's to help people quit smoking. But basically, what it is, it's a little pouch of synthetic tobacco. So it's not actually like tobacco leaves. It's it's created in a lab. So it's synthetic tobacco. And they are, you put it inside your gum, uh, just lay it there, leave it there for an hour, and it seeps tobacco, uh, sorry, nicotine into your system gradually. 
to help you get over some cravings that you are having. They are marketing it as a cessation aid, but unfortunately, it's being marketed widely to children and youth because it's very colorful marketing, very small little packages. And um, what we are afraid of as an organization, of course, is that youth are going to find them very attractive and use them when they're not even smoking. So the nicotine pouch is like chewing tobacco, except chewing tobacco is actual tobacco leaves and this is synthetic. Yes, exactly. And you don't chew it. You just leave it in your mouth, leave it between your gum and your lip, and, and it just sort of slowly releases uh, this nicotine into your system. So we know the problems associated with nicotine. Is there, is there an additional layer of worry here? Because nicotine is, you know, of course, highly addictive and in the wrong hands can be dangerous, especially when we talk about youth. So is there another type of concern that you have with these nicotine pouches? Well, the main concern we have with them is that they are not regulated. So um, everybody was sort of taken by surprise when they came out to the market. Nobody was expecting them. They were uh, approved by Health Canada through the Natural Health Products um, legislation. So they didn't go through the same sort of rigorous testing that would happen with a drug or um, any other sort of cessation aid like the patch or the gum or the inhaler or anything like that. So the problem, of course, is that we don't really know what kind of um, testing was done on them. We don't know if uh, they're actually effective. And Health Canada has come right out and said, well, we didn't know either. And we are, you know, we were sort of duped into, uh, you know, um, getting this product into the market. And um, so, yeah, so there is a, there's definitely a concern uh, about these products. It sounds like it. So what are, what are they doing elsewhere? I know the province of British Columbia has taken a different approach. What are they doing? British Columbia actually really moved in the right direction there yesterday. And they are saying that these products now need to be sold in pharmacies only and behind the counter. So a pharmacist, uh, you have to ask a pharmacist for it, which is great because obviously a pharmacist can tell you how to use it, if it's going to be effective for you, make sure that you use it the right way. Um, so pharmacists are really good for this kind of uh, information. Absolutely. You know, so it, it's curious how we approach displaying different products out there that are addictive and problematic. You know, you've got all these big warnings on the marijuana packages and you've got all <laughs> these, uh, you know, we've got these nondescript uh, packages of cigarettes and cigarillos, what have you, all carefully concealed behind, you know, black doors or some gates inside the the uh, gas station or the store when it used to be exactly the opposite. But then you look at, and I know this is not your ballywick, but then you look at something like alcohol. It's right there for all to see. It's right there right, for everybody to right. see. It's as problematic as any other substance, well, maybe outside of some of these illicit toxic drugs that are on the street. But it's funny how we've taken a different approach to different facets of addictive properties, substances, and products. It, yeah, it is. And in fact, the, the problem, of course, with nicotine is that it is one of the most addictive products, uh, most addictive drugs in the world. Absolutely. Right and we are having a, a, a problem with our young people. So it is not... Um, it is not that, you know, you can't compare nicotine and alcohol or cannabis and alcohol. You know, they're all sort of in the same realm. But nicotine is so, so addictive and so dangerous when it comes to how you get it into your body. So you can't really smoke a cigarette and 
be safe about it. I can have a glass of wine with supper, I suppose, if I want it, and be sort of safe about it. But, uh, you know, nicotine is one of those, those substances that are really, really affecting our youth through vaping, through cigarettes, and now, unfortunately, and you know, hopefully not through these nicotine pouches. We have been told uh, in you know a number of um, times now that uh, principals are confiscating these in schools, so they are finding these little nicotine pouches on their students. Students are getting sick because they're using them too often, or they are not even smoking and using them just for the thrill of it. And um, and getting really ill because of course nicotine is a poison. At the at the end of the day, um, you can become nicotine poisoned. You can become nicotine sick. And so you know you really have to be careful when it comes to our young people. And that's why we're so concerned about the advertising. It's why we're so concerned about all of these bright colors that they're using. This attractive little package. Um, you know, yes, cigarettes were put behind that black wall, but if you go into a store now, that black wall is no longer black. It's bright green and bright red with Zonic splashed right across it because they're using that as advertising space. It's uh, it's an interesting issue. And, you know, this on top of things like the vape, which is so mm. enormously popular. If you drive by... Maybe in elementary school, but certainly junior highs and high schools, there is huge puffs of vape in the air because they are in a lot of hands. We have the highest vaping rate uh, among high school students in Canada. Um, Right now, Newfoundland and Labrador is the highest vaping rates for the past 30 days and the highest number, uh, you know, the highest percentage of teenagers who have tried vaping. Um, so we are in a, a vaping crisis right now in the province. It is starting younger and younger. Uh, we actually have developed some resources now for teachers for grade four uh, because we've heard from elementary school teachers that they are finding vapes on their students and finding them vaping in the bathroom and things like that. So no vaping. And again, the, the problem with vaping is that it is nicotine they are vaping. So it's not just harmless water vapor. It's not just steam. It is nicotine, and they are getting addicted. Of course they are. Uh, Melissa, I appreciate making time. Would you like to add anything else before we take a break? No, I am I am actually good. Thank you for uh, letting me on the air and, and talking about this issue. Happy to have you on. Stay in touch. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Melissa Moore is a program and education coordinator with the Alliance for the Control of Tobacco. Let's take a break. Do not go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number four, thinking more to the independent member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving the folks of Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing okay. How about you? I'm doing this great. Um, Patty, I guess I just wanted to call in um, to throw my support, at least, uh, behind the efforts of our consumer advocate, uh, Dennis Brown. Uh, I heard Dennis on your show, I, I, I think it was early last week or, or late week before that. I think it was early last week. Uh, and he was talking about the uh, latest um, uh, rate increase application by Newfoundland Power uh, that's going to be going before the Public Utilities Board. And listening to what Dennis had to say, I, I, and I did look it up on, online as well, Newfoundland Power proposing to raise their return on investment um, uh, to 9.85 percent, and I believe Dennis indicated that currently they receive uh, 8.5 uh, percent return on investment, 
And uh, in listening to him and the conversation he had with you, uh, I believe what he said that equates to is that right now uh, they are making uh, approximately $47 million annually. Uh, that, that's, that's profits. That's not revenue. And that based on the calculations that he has done and people in, in, in his office have done, he's estimating another, uh, this would mean an additional $9 million annually in profits, bringing us up to going from $47 million in profits up to about $55, $56 million in, 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 uh, in pure profits. And, uh, you know, given the situation we are in uh, as a province in terms of, uh, you know, the financial situation, people struggling with the cost of living, whether it be the price of gas at, uh, at the pumps, the price of groceries and all the other, co- the, the, uh, the mortgage rates, which have gone through the roof and are having a huge impact on people. Um, I, I really feel that such an increase is unwarranted. Uh, I would hope that, uh, as they did in the past, um, Newfoundland Power, the last time Newfoundland Power tried to do this, uh, eventually, I think because of a lot of public pressure, people contacting them, there were some protests and so on, I believe they did withdraw their application. I would hope the same thing would happen, not counting on it. Certainly, if not, it'll go to the PUB and uh, hope, and we'll certainly be depending on Mr. Brown and his office to present the case on behalf of the people. Uh, and to be able to say that this is just not justified. Uh, you know, we're a small province. You made $47 million in pure province uh, pro- profit in a province the size of Newfoundland Labrador. You really have no competition, so there's really no risk. If you were to, uh, if you know, if you required, uh, for example, money to be invested in capital and so on, that was a legitimate capital request, you could go before the Public Utilities Board, as they've done in the past, as they're doing now, I do believe. They are. Uh, with another application. Oh, there's two. So let, let's just set the table so people know exactly what we're talking about here. So yep. the one you referred to that they withdrew, I believe that was a few years ago regarding monies for a computer system upgrade, which should not be my concern. That's an operational concern. It's not about the provision of power or the reliability of the grid. So this is an annual rate application on the 1st of July. It's part of the rate stabilization plan. So the plan is, or the rate application uh, says this July the 1st, 1.5%. Next July, 5.5% in 2025. The PUB got out in front of this, which is unusual, so says Mr. Brown, and I found it unusual as well. The PUB put out a press release that said, full recovery of Newfoundland Power's costs, including forecast supply costs, could result in significantly higher increase in customer rates than the 5.5% indicated in the application. So that's in addition to the proposed increased rate of return from 8.5% to 9.85%. So there's more to it than simply that rate of return. Oh, yes, absolutely. That, that, absolutely. That's on top of that. And it's important for people to realize, too, because people sometimes get confused and they mix uh, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro and Newfoundland Power. They throw them all into the one boat and so on. And people say, oh, well, that's muskrat falls and so on. Like, it's, like, let's be clear. This particular application has nothing to do with muskrat falls. This has nothing to do with the fact that Newfoundland Power is going to cost them more money to purchase power from Newfoundland Hydro, which is who produces the power. It has nothing to do with, you know, employees need a raise. It has nothing to do with capital investments. This has, this simply has to do with the fact that we made, uh, not for, according to Mr. Brown, $47 million last year. And now next year, we'd like to be able to make 
uh, 55 to 56 million, according to the numbers Mr. Brown put out there. That's what this particular application is about, on top of the other application that you just referred to. So it's got, and, and, and that has nothing to do with Muskrat Falls. So when we get to the point where there's going to, you know, if there's going to be impacts uh, felt with Muskrat Falls, that's going to be on top of that yet again if that happens. So, you know, um, again, given the fact of where we're to financially, uh, where people are too struggling with the cost of living, uh, you know, this, and, and by the way, Patty, when you look at it, you know, some people say, well, they're getting 8.5%, they're looking for 9.8%, but that's only 1.35%, but it's not. It's 1.35% extra in terms of the rate of return, but that's equating to, like I said, um, uh, $9 million, which if you do the math on that, that's about a 20% increase. That's almost like you going to the boss and saying, I want 20% increase in my paycheck. That's kind of, you know, to make an analogy, that's kind of what we're talking about. 20% additional money coming in through the door for the shareholders that the ratepayers are going to be responsible for. So, again, thank you, Mr. Brown, for what you're doing. I support you 100%. I would hope that my other colleagues in the House Assembly would do likewise. I appreciate the time, Paul. Thanks for the call. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Paul Lane, independent member, Mount Pearl Southlands. Let's get to another one before the news. Line number two, Jeff, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I'm going to try to venture into some deep waters here now, uh, way over my head, but I was hoping you're, you'll, you'll have some uh, opinions and perspective because I really do appreciate your opinions and perspective on a variety of issues. Fair enough. Uh, I was wondering what you thought of, and you probably haven't seen it yet or heard it yet, the Tucker Carlson interview with Putin. I have not. Okay. I've seen, I've seen some clips, but in its entirety, I have not. So I don't really have a judgment to bring forward or my, or my opinion on what it was. I have seen some clips of it. I don't know if I'm going to make time to watch it this weekend, but it's on my possible list. I think it clocks in just at, o- at just over two hours. Yeah, it's a long one. It, I find it fascinating, but I have to say that I've never watched a Tucker Carlson show. Uh, I have no dog in that race. I don't watch Fox. I don't watch CNN. But I am concerned with the conflict between Ukraine and Russia because of its global implications. Of course. And specifically, uh, the fact that Canada, uh, we are um, funding, uh, I feel like it's, I think is what they refer to as a proxy war. So it's like a NATO proxy war with Russia. Is that what, what it Well, that's what it? some people call it. You know, I've been told, I've been gaslighting people, and, you know, but, but not blaming Ukraine for, but I mean, the Russians invaded Ukraine. And people say, well, you know, if the Ukraine had to walk away from any of their hopes or wants to join NATO, which is an entirely a defensive uh, alliance, which does not start anything, individual countries may. So that's, you know, depends on who you want to believe and the origins of this war. But it's not that long ago the Russians stormed in and took Crimea as well. So it's a complicated issue. Like I've said many times, I really don't know, you know where the off-ramps are. I'm not 100% sure even to, to know who to believe about some of the news coming out of Ukraine because there's a lot of purposeful disinformation that also flows. And with Tucker Carlson, look, uh, you know, I don't watch Fox or CNN either. I watch no American cable news. I just cannot handle it. It's just too ridiculous for words. But like some of the things that he gets on with, I personally disagree with, and he, he's welcome to say whatever he wants. But 
But even with this Putin interview, so he put out a video on social media that said, you know, no journalist or no Western media organization has ever even approached uh, Vladimir Putin to talk about the conflict in Ukraine. And you know who shot that down? The Kremlin. The Kremlin said it was a lie. And then there was a defamation case that were in the courts, and Tucker Carlson and his lawyers and Fox and their lawyers basically said any reasonable person should be suspicious about what Tucker Carlson says. He said it himself. I mean, so that's where I have a hard time understanding how people put all full stock into someone like Carlson. He got fired for all the lies he was telling on Fox about Dominion voting machines. They settled out of court for about three quarters of a billion dollars or something. So that's basically what they said. Mr. Carlson's reputation or any reasonable viewer arrives with an appropriate amount of skepticism about the statements he makes. That's a mouthful to me. Like, if someone said that about me, my career would be over. Uh, no, I agree. I mean, it's all sensational journalism. And, and Tucker Carlson, let's say he's he's a guy of ill repute. I'm not disagreeing anything. I'm not disagreeing any of that. But the fact is, is right now in this time, he somehow got access to Putin and he's sitting across from him and asking point blank, uh, I feel, relevant questions. That, that's I think you, you kind of got to put some of that stuff aside as hard as it is and listen to some of these answers that Putin is giving for these I feel straightforward, poignant questions about the conflict. That, that's where I am with it. Because all the stuff that you just said about Tucker Carlson's reputation, I, I feel like it's in the back of my mind. And, and I, I agree. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't trust him to paint the fence. But the fact is, is he's just uh, asking simple, direct questions and getting... Um, uh, long form explanations and that's where I think it, it becomes very interesting because you're getting a perspective now that I don't feel we've heard yeah look I I should probably check out as much of it as I can handle because it is a major issue that's facing global consequence I will not argue that at all because you're 100% right you know like one of the clips I also saw was that Putin was talking and I only watched a little bit of it, so again, I can't pass judgment on the entirety of the conversation or the interview because I just didn't see it, so it would be unfair of me to do so. But, you know, Putin was talking, Tucker Carlson jumped in, Putin uh, swats back and says, you're not even a journalist, you're an entertainer. And that's what Putin said right to for Carlson's face, which is sort of a strange thing inside of a two-hour conversation. So I suppose I should do myself... Uh, the information gathering that I try to do day in and day out and have a listen to what was said. Here's some further reaction from a variety of people who, you know, I basically do trust their opinion on a, a variety of issues. So, yeah, I'll, I'll do that much. But if you say it's it's worth the watch, I'll take your word for it, Jeff. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I, it's never good to just to just listen to one side. And so here's an opportunity to listen to the other side. And then form your own opinions. But I, I do say, I am saying this, though. I am very uncomfortable with Canada's support of the war in Ukraine without having any knowledge of the other side, at least. All the military equipment being sent over, the billions of dollars in funding. I mean, it's serious. Um, it's a serious commitment that I feel most of us are not fully informed on. That's all I'm saying. Well, I've seen the dollar amounts. I think there's also a financial calculation as to what happens if Ukraine is unsuccessful in defending themselves. That has other consequences. I mean, you know, you talk about the whole fifth article of the NATO alliance, things like you attack on one is an attack on all. What happens if all of a sudden Putin finds himself in Latvia? 
or in Poland. I mean, there's no guarantee he stops at Ukraine. Why would there be? Why would we trust him to say that when repeatedly history is very, very clear? He's going to go where he wants to go. So what happens if all of a sudden that's the case? I mean, I think that's got to be part of everyone's calculation because it is a serious matter. As part of our membership in NATO, if a NATO nation gets attacked, then all of a sudden we're in. Nobody wants that. Well, I don't want that. It's interesting that you. It's interesting that you bring that up because Tucker Carlson asks him that question: Why not Poland after this? And and Putin and I believe me, I grew up in Cold War, so I'm not going to take everything Russia says. I'm taking it all with a grain of salt. But he puts into context the reasons for the Ukraine invasion, and then also in his own um, words. I mean, yes, uh, in his own words. Grain of salt is a good one. Just because it's 10:05, they're really mad at me to oh, get yeah. to the news, but I'll give you the last word. Yeah, Go yeah, ahead, Jeff. Of course, yeah. No, no, you got it. That's it. I we'll appreciate your time. Later. Thank you. Later. Take bye. care. Bye-bye. All right, news time. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go to line number one. Vera, you're on the air. Hi, Vera. Hi, good, hi, good morning, Vera. Good morning. Um, I'm calling about the, the hair annulus and the health care. Yep. Here um, on um, January the 4th, I was admitted into St. Anthony Hospital. I went there to do my dialysis for the day, and my line came out. So I was in St. Anthony Hospital till the next Tuesday, um, and I missed three treatments on the count of that I couldn't get to St. John's because the air ambulance was flying. And um, so anyway, um, that uh, all the rest of the planes were flying, and they said, oh, it was too bad, and there was too much wind, and there was always some kind of excuse about the area, right? So anyway, I think that uh, he needs to have a better system than what they got for the air ambulance because, I mean, uh, like people is going to end up losing their life. I mean, like, I can't go a week without my dialysis, even though I had to. And, I mean, like, it's it's my life-saving uh, treatments that I have to go for three times a week in St. Anthony, right? And uh, then I got a medevac in uh, St. John's after a week. Then um, I end up in the corridor for three days uh, on the stretcher, uh, just having the procedure done. And uh, I don't think it's good enough. I don't. I think it's time for the government to put the patients ahead of themselves because I I really think that they're. Uh, uh, wasting too much money and other things and not putting the money out there in the health care and then the people got to suffer for it. Yeah, so uh, is this Vera from Flowers Cove? Pardon? Are you a Vera from Flowers Cove? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I was just trying to connect the dots. So, I mean, even Layla Evans, the NDP member for Torengat, has basically said on this program this week that the reasons that Medivac were telling people why they could not get to Labrador were lies. So she broke down a couple of instances where she said that people were given completely inaccurate information. 
But no matter how you slice it or who's telling the truth, the fact of the matter is medevac is there for a critically important reason. And so we have to be very clear about how or why people are unable to respond to an emergency or otherwise in Labrador or the Great Northern Peninsula or anywhere because Miss Evans brings up some pretty important uh, information. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, it, it needs to be something done. I mean, there's uh, people who is going to hit, uh, well, probably have lost their life or end up losing their life uh, because of that, you know. Uh, and I, I think it's ridiculous. And then you go in the hospital and uh, you're in, in, in the corridor again for three days. Uh you know, and people going back and forth and whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's discrimination as far as I'm concerned. Like, you know, the people, uh, it's time for the people here in this province to wake up and and stick together and get things done. Because if not, I mean, we're going to be in, a, in dire straits. And especially us here on the Northern Peninsula, because, I mean, the government doesn't know we exist anyway. I appreciate the time and the comments this morning. Vera, would you like to say anything else? Well, no, not right now, but I guess you'll be hearing from me again. Whenever you have time. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Vera. Bye-bye. Yeah, the comments coming from Leela Evans about Medivac and reasons or rationale as to why they were unable to respond to calls for medical uh, transportation airlift from Labrador. She was pretty firm on her stance on it. Okay, let's try to take a break on time. When we come back, Tyler, you're next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Tyler, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how's it going? Doing okay. How are you doing? Good, good. First time caller, so I'm a little bit nervous here, but uh, time. no, Go I right just ahead. had to call because uh, had to, uh, like I just I was listening to that guy talk about the whole Tucker Carlson interview and stuff like that, and uh, I don't know, man. It's just it's uh, it's cra- it's a crazy time that I don't know. Why are we listening to guys like you know Vladimir Putin and Tucker Carlson talk about it and speak as if it's truth? Well, that's a a fair question. I mean, Carlson has been unabashedly pro-Putin on this one. He he just has been, and that's not my words. They're his own words. And, I mean, Putin is an old KGB officer. I mean, part of his bag is, you know, straight-up propaganda. I mean, they're meddling. I mean, to me, to me, I mean, this is just like this is— this was the most ideal situation for a guy like Vladimir Putin. I mean, he, you know, Tucker Carlson, he has a huge audience. I think it's fine that he wants to go and interview him, but, <clears throat> I mean, the fact that people are saying, give him a platform, let him speak his truth kind of thing, but and decide for yourselves, but to me, I mean, it seems like most of these people probably have it already decided themselves that this is how they want to see things, and, you know... Are we surprised by anything that Putin said in the interview? I don't think so. But, I mean, you know, it's it's the fact that people are taking it before as truth before we even really speculate on it. I mean, like you said, he's a former KGB agent. This is exactly what he does, right? And, <clears throat> you know, to me, I just, I'm, I'm appalled by the fact that we've kind of got to a point where these are what people feel like are are the voices of truth now, right? 
it's just it's also look I can't comment on the interview because I didn't watch it so I'll just leave that aside for a minute but even things like uh, the clip I saw when Carlson asked him about you know what happens if Poland is next and Putin says that's not going to happen but he kind of told us the same thing in 2014 about Ukraine proper uh, that that was it Crimea was the end of the road and of course obviously that's not true how do I know because the war's on you can look at Georgia I mean he's said this stuff before and it's you know he's never really stuck to that so you know I, I, I just don't understand how we've gotten to a point where he's this is supposed to be real I mean Tucker Carlson's not even a real journalist he's an entertainer why are we speaking as if this guy is a real journalist you know I, I don't know I, I don't give him any labels uh, necessarily but you know even if you just think about it in the big scope uh, the broad strokes Russia was the enemy. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> How did that change? The Cold War exactly. was real. It's not that long. It's over. This is a guy who disappears. He's political opponents. I just, I really exactly. have a hard time understanding a, a lot of this, to be honest. And, I mean, like, you know, sure, you know, I, I, I never watched a full interview either. I mean, to be fair, I, I only watched uh, clips and stuff like that from it. Um, I didn't really want to watch it, to be honest. Um but, you know, there was clips of him. Fair enough, he asked some questions regarding that journalist who was imprisoned over there. Um, but are we, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if this was prearranged. You know, Tucker probably gave him an idea that he has to press him, so it makes it seem more honest. But if that, you know, if that is what happened, and, you know, I'm, I wouldn't be shocked if, Tucker buttered him up basically to make it seem like a more truthful interview, right? Yeah, I don't know, but I'm going to guess behind closed doors before the camera started to roll, there was a carefully negotiated uh, course of action for that interview. I mean, there had to be. Yeah. So, you know, it's just I I had to call because I just, I, I can't believe we're at a point where all of a sudden we're taking Vladimir Putin, this guy who has just been a master of deception essentially uh we're 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 talking as if you know he's the he's telling the truth when when has he ever told the truth on stuff right i mean there are sketchy things that probably go on with the cia i think it'd be naive to not believe that and with the u.s government and all that stuff it's totally fair but to think that vladimir putin is the good guy here it's just i don't know it's just shocking to me He's done a great job, apparently, or obviously have set himself up to be viewed like that when it's just hard to believe that folks think that he's the good guy, as you say. I just don't know what's going on here. And look, you know, then some Americans will push back, say, for instance, if you are a Trump supporter and all the thoughts and talk about Russia. And, of course, that became one of the bugaboos. And those, I think that's in large part why we have so many people thinking that Putin is the good guy, which is, again, strange rationale. But I haven't seen the interview itself, so I'm just going to leave that aside. But your, your points are well taken here. How all of a sudden we think that the tellers of truth. I mean, Ronald Reagan would be rolling over in his grave right now. Yeah, tear down you know, the swamp, uh, sure. <laughs> exactly, right? I mean, like, you know, it's um it's just I, I it's just a very strange time, I mean, to be viewing, I guess, like uh the Russians as the good guys here and feel like they're fighting some just cause here. I mean, it's just I, I don't understand how we really got here and it's it's just disappointing to see, I guess, but 
you know, people obviously had their own opinions on stuff. I can't sway them on that. But uh, just to me, I just can't believe that we're taking any grain of truth with any of this. It's it's crazy to me. It's crazy times, man. And, <laughs> you know, to we also have to acknowledge that, you know, whether people think Russian collusion, whatever, there are 17 agencies regarding intelligence in the United States, and every single agency said that the Russians meddled in the election, period. Mm -hmm. And we know full well they're doing the same here. You know, we can talk about China and Iran, but Russia is a bad actor, period, and they prove it day in and day out. And so all of a sudden... Now they've done a brilliant job, obviously, of positioning themselves in some people's minds that they're not the bad guy. How that switch got flipped, I will never understand. I don't get it either. I don't get it either, but, you know, we'll see what happens, I guess. I suppose. Uh, you know, that's why I just kind of use a corner of my ear and my eye and my brain to look at some of the reporting that comes out of conflicts like that because – some of it is very carefully positioned and planted and misinformation, disinformation. It's gen generally becoming more and more difficult to know exactly what you could and should believe because it, yeah. it's just like drinking from a fire hose every day. If there are certain accounts that you might follow that are covering what's happening in Gaza, accounts that are, you know, what's happening in Ukraine or what's happening in the parts of Africa or in Yemen, and it's just really hard to figure it out. And so, anyway, yeah. my poor old brain is muddled come Friday, 10, 26, and 42 seconds. <laughs> I appreciate making time yeah. for the show, Tyler. No problem. Thanks a lot, Patty. Take good care of yourself. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go. Line number five. Good morning, Michelle. You are on the air. Hi. Your brain's not the only one muddled, Patty, on a Friday, believe me. I bet. And well, COVID, post-COVID doesn't help either. But I'm calling today um, because it's been my experience uh, this past week, uh, a real eye-opener concerning our healthcare system, um, with regards to MRIs, CAT scans, stress tests, echo sounding on the heart, different things like that. It's amazing how people actually get their appointments, and it's it's been a real eye-opener. I got a call Tuesday morning from Health and Community Services to advise me that my appointment was booked and I'd received my letter in the mail by Friday of this week. No letter came. By Thursday of this week, Thursday, Friday, no letter came yesterday. So I called uh, the MRI appointment. And they told me, no, we don't have an appointment for you. Uh, hang on, I'm going to get someone to call you back. Nobody called me back, so I called them again this morning. Uh, the lady told me that I was uh, tr uh, that I was actually categorized as a non-emergency uh, procedure. Now I had a viral attack. Uh, I'm stone deaf in one ear, uh, and apparently with this type of infection, it's airborne. But because I have COVID, I guess my system is down a bit. I couldn't fight it off. But you go permanently deaf if it's not treated ASAP. Uh, so I was referred over, and I said, or I said, but. Uh, I was advised that I had an appointment booked. She said, no, she said, you don't. And it'll be a long time out before you get an appointment. So I did a bit of checking, and apparently your your doctor or your specialist can send over a, a, a fax or a request for a procedure to be done. The radiologist decides whether or not you're in an emergency or not. Now, as far as I know, these radiologists are not medically trained individuals. They're trained to operate a machine. I could be wrong. 
I don't know. Yeah, the, that was my fair enough. Now the technicians would have intimate understanding of not only how to operate the machine, but how to view results. That would not be their sole responsibility because there's people, other healthcare professionals, for that. So, are you saying that the technicians are the people that are behind prioritizing patients? That's what I was specifically told. The radiologist will decide whether or not you are considered an immediate urgent procedure needs to be done or you can be put out a year down the road. There are some procedures like CAT scans, stuff like that, that you could be waiting. You could have cancer and it's in its early stages, but the doctor wants to have you checked out. So, you know, cancer pretty aggressive. You'd like to get a handle on it pretty quick. Now, a radiologist, you know, there's such a thing as a radiologist technician, but there's also a radiologist who's a medical doctor. So if the medical doctor who's a radiologist, that's exactly who does the prioritization. That's not what they said. They just said that one lady said a technician, the other one said a radiologist. So whether well, there's a difference between the two, I don't know. Yeah, but there is. A technician isn't a medical doctor. Yeah, well, that's that's who they. But they, these are the people they're saying does it because I said, how how is that possible? They have no medical training. You know, I mean, if you have a specialist, you know, like I have an ears, nose, and throat specialist. That's his field. That's his that's his specialty. Yep. But you know, if for all I know, it 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 could be a tumor. They can't figure out I had three needles in the ear, but it's not clearing when it should have. So now that this is why they want the MRI done, to see if anything else, <laughs> could be anything for all I know, you know. But what I'm trying to say is people don't realize that, like I never realized that that was, that was it. When a doctor sends a referral over, you know, they're asking they need these results as quick as possible, and it's being said in these referrals, but there's nothing being actioned. Then you have community and health services from our health department saying to me, no, your appointment's booked. Don't worry about it. You'll get your referral. You'll get your appointment this week. And when you call them, it's not even done. You know, why do they lie to you? You know, why isn't there full disclosure on it? Why are our appointments a year out? You know, do these machines work 24 hours a day with staff on them? Did you clear the backdrop? You know, if it's that far out, you know, you'd think they would increase the amount of access to these machines. We yeah. also have a shortage of technicians, but so uh, it, it is important that we understand exactly what you were told and told by who, because a technician who's in th- working in the Department of Radiology is not a radiologist. A radiologist is actually a medical doctor. So there okay. are two different well, maybe, things in this world. Pardon? Maybe you know better than I do. When your referral is faxed into these places for appointments, Somebody, well, at first, somebody, it takes three weeks for somebody to pick up that fax, punch it into a machine, into the computer, so that somebody can look at that request and say, mm, we're going to take that one, that's an urgent one. No, that one can wait a year. Yeah, that's so a doctor. That, that, just, so, just so we understand, the person who would evaluate the priority on this front would be the doctor. The technician basically shows up at work, and they have a schedule that Michelle is coming in at 10 for her MRI or for her CAT scan uh-huh. or her PET scan. So that's only a technician doing the operations of the machine and providing the results to the radiologist so who can read, evaluate, and determine what they he or she says or sees and then the next course of treatment so the technician simply operates the machine the radiologist is an actual doctor 
So would that apply, I wonder, to everything that had to be yes. done, like an MRI, CAT scan? I want to say yes. Counties? Yeah, because the way it was put to me, it was off the charts. But, I mean, why call you and say, listen, you're getting your letter in the mail? It's on route. You'll get it by Thursday or Friday. That was that was community services. Um, Newfoundland's uh, Health and Community Services Department called me and said, yeah, we've been in touch. It's been done, you know. And that person would simply be communicating what they were told. Yeah. But, again, when I called yesterday, nobody could, no, no, we'll call you back. And there was no call back at all. You know, they could have at least said even yesterday that, no, there's no appointment booked, you know. But people can't just wait around and, and for, for letters to come in. I suggest anybody that's, uh, that has waiting for a booking needs to follow up on it because, you don't know. I mean, if, if that's what's happening and your doctor's telling you something is urgent, you still may be waiting a year, six yeah. months to a year to get it done. And there, there's another interesting little problem. It's because, of course, if I'm a doctor and I have real concerns for my patient's health and I deem their need to be uh, urgent, then, of course, everybody, everybody's doctor is stamping the referral as urgent. And so, yeah. you know, all of a sudden, if there's a 1,000 referrals come in and 989 mm-hmm. of them are stamped urgent and there's only so much time in the course of a day, a week, a month, and a year to see how however many patients because the I would imagine the referral list is relentless day in and day out so it's not for me to say which ones are the most surgical because I have no earthly idea I'm not a doctor but it is absolutely the radiologist who's prioritizing who gets seen first the technician would simply use the machine yeah but then it comes down to your radiologists are they are they trained in all types of cancers that it like for me this viral if I'm if this isn't taken care of I can remain permanently deaf in one ear you know that's why they had to do the injections immediately a lot of people don't realize that things is wax in the rear and they let it go and by the time the doc- they get to the specialist the damage is done they can't do anything for them yeah the radiologists are these radiologists trained in all facets of medicine i mean that's not. They do, and there's also teams, right? So a radiologist would also have uh, an ongoing working relationship with, for instance, an oncologist or an ear, nose, and throat specialist. But they are 100% trained to diagnose, to treat different injuries, different diseases. They, the amount of training undergone by radiologists is pretty extensive, is my understanding. But of course, like many disciplines inside the world, especially in healthcare. They have teams. Like, they actually have team meetings about, here's this patient, here's the results. So the oncologist talking with the radiologist, talking with the social worker, talking with the ear, nose, and throat specialist, talking with the orthopedic surgeon. So they, there's a lot of collaboration in coming up with, you know, next steps after there has been a PET scan or an MRI or a CT scan because it's not just one person involved in someone's treatment. There's absolutely team stuff. I know because I've had some pretty serious procedures over the years that involved more than one medical professional in the decision-making about whether or not to have a surgery, and they walk you through it. So, yes, the radiology uh, radiologist treatment is comprehensive and extensive, and they do work yeah. in actual teams. Yeah, because that, that, that's not what was explained. That was not... Well, I, I can't speak to shot. what you were told, but that's yeah. that's a more realistic view of what happens in healthcare. Yeah. No, I appreciate you taking the call, Patty. I appreciate you making time. I hope you're doing okay. Have a great weekend. Thanks, my darling. The very same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, does anybody know anything about 211? Pretty helpful service that's available here in the province that probably doesn't get enough uh, understanding and or uh, information sharing. We're going to do exactly that when we come back. Kimberly Leonard is the director of 211 NL. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to the program. Let's go to Leonard Bowen. Say good morning to the director of 211NL. That's Kimberly Leonard. Good morning, Kimberly. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you today? I couldn't be better. How about you? <laughs> awesome. Um, my name is Kimberly Leonard. I am the director of 211 in Newfoundland and Labrador. Part of my job is to spread the word about the wonderful service of 211 and let everyone know about this invaluable service. Uh, as you know, we are living in difficult times with many uncertainties, and 211 can be the open door to the help you need when you need it most. But we need to get the word out there to everyone in Newfoundland and Labrador that this service line actually exists. What's the number you have to dial? 211. You can Sorry, call I'm only kidding. Okay. Kimberly, I know a little bit about it because uh, you and I have been exchanging messages and I've gone through and looked at the website and, you know, know that it's partnership with the United Ways of Newfoundland Labrador and their partners. It was launched in mid-October, funding through the Government of Canada, and it really is a catch-all. The uh, number of categories where people can get some help is really extensive and comprehensive. Right. So 211 is actually an information assessment, referral, and follow-up service, and it is in every province and territory. So with the increase in needs across Canada, it has become Canada's primary source of information for various things like government and community-based programs, services, and supports. Uh, we cover the human health and social program services and supports that are actually available. And 211 is very broad because we deal with all populations. We deal with youth, adults, seniors, families, Indigenous peoples, people with disabilities, newcomers, and LGBTQ+. You name it, we deal with them. And our service navigators are trained and they're certified and they have at their fingertips a very large database that enables them to actually do a high-quality search of the services that are available. So we have everything from basic human needs, uh, such as food, income, support and housing, supports for mental health and addictions, violence and abuse, education, childcare, after-school programs, job training and employment, to navigating many government programs and services. And as of December, uh, two has partnered with our provincial government and 811 to become another access point for the public to find distribution sites for naloxone kits. And uh, another benefit of, of uh, 211 is, you know, 211 across Canada has been a really critical resource in helping communities navigate through times of crisis, such as hurricanes, the flood. We've seen that, you know, with, uh, with Fiona, forest fires that have been de devastating the country over the past year, and other emergency situations where states of emergencies are declared. And we've just seen that recent situation in Cape Breton with all the snow and 211 assisted the government in getting out the key messages to the public and providing direction and, nerve, uh, and navigation to the services where that was available to the public. Yeah, I do a little bit of 211 here, uh, as a matter of fact. So just so people have a clear understanding, your site, 211, is not a place where there's going to be actions taken. What you're trying to do is disseminate requests for information. And, you know, for instance, we're talking mental health and addiction. Be able to point them to resources for addiction counseling or support groups or treatment or mental health services at large so it's not that you're going to be able to execute on their individual request but you're going to be able to put them on to the right entity or organization right we are provider and uh, the beauty of 211 is that uh, in a world where you pick up the phone and get a voice message when you call 211 you will get a live voice in real time 
211 can be accessed by anyone living in Newfoundland and Labrador by phone, chat, or the web. It's available 24-7, 365 days a year. We can accommodate people who are deaf, deafened, or hard of hearing. We have a huge language component allowing us to service over 150 languages. It's free and confidential, and wait times are just so minimal. And we can actually connect people to emergency situations and support if that is what is needed through the call. And that is determined by the caller and the service navigator, and we do that through a process called a live transfer. And we transfer people to 811 and 911 all the time. So we are actually a connector. We can be the link to there are so many organizations and agencies and supports and people that are out there eager to help. We just need to connect the people to those services and let them know what's available. Yeah, it's it's a real catch-all. So when I call 211, who exactly am I speaking to? What kind of training do they have to execute this important duty? Okay, when you call 211, uh, first of all, you will be greeted by a friendly service navigator who is highly trained and certified, and they're actually trained and certified by Inform Canada, and they're ready to listen. They assess the situation. They're very good at navigating through the issues. Like, for example, someone might call and they, they want to access to food, but there may be underlying issues there as well. Uh, I can give you an example uh, of someone calling. I don't do the calls myself, but the service navigator does, and they will call, and they have the training to assess the information. They're really good at dealing with emotions because often in difficult times, emotions are associated with that, and they can get to the root of the problem, and then they'll actually provide service navigation based on the conversation, and there may be three services that they can connect them to. So if someone calls about food, they may act, might actually need income support and they might actually be facing eviction from, from their home. So there's all kinds of issues there and they will be provided to those resources that can help them. When you talk about there are indeed, you know, one of the categories is mental health and addictions mm-hmm. and that's helpful to be able to disseminate information for them. What happens when you find yourself with a caller in crisis? Well, a caller in crisis, the service navigator would talk you would get the information from them because they're really good at uh, determining what the issues are and they will automatically provide connect them through a live transfer to the emergency services that are available. Uh, sometimes they will advocate for the caller. Our our goal is to give them the information so they can help themselves but in times of crisis and emergency situations the service navigator will actually do the advocating and connect them to the services that they need. It's terrific. And, you know, I'm just hoping for, to get a better understanding. So you deal with someone, say, for instance, in crisis or any other issue where it might not be necessary to call 911 or a mental health check-in by a police officer or what have you. But is there a follow-up component? Absolutely. There can be a follow-up service. That is required. Uh, that is determined by the service navigator. And if the client or the caller uh, would like a follow-up, they will certainly with, because it's a confidential service. But if they want to follow-up, then we will take their number and we will follow-up in a day or two to see uh, where they are with the, with the services that were, they were connected with and, and what they need in additional.
It's excellent. Uh, Kimberly, would you like to add anything else to the conversation? Well, we do have 211 Day coming up on Sunday, February 11th, second month, 11th day in Canada. Newfoundland will be participating. Um, you can look for our building landmarks in St. John's this weekend to be illuminated in red to represent 211 and to bring awareness. Uh, we have the Confederation Building, the City Halls, and City of St. John's and City of Mount Pearl. And we've had all mayors across Newfoundland and Labrador. They were invited to read and sign the 211 Day Proclamation declaring Sunday, February 11th, as 211 Day in their regions. And I want to thank everyone for the outpouring of support that we've had on this initiative because the more awareness we can bring to 211, um, you know, the better it is for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. It is a trustworthy service and you know it can be accessed by anyone at any time so if you don't know the answer or you can't find the answer call 211 our motto is help starts here keep up the good work kimberly thanks for making time for the program thank you take Have care a great day. you too bye-bye kimberly leonard's director of 211 nl uh who am i coming back to speak with david after this break david's on the phone anyway let's go ahead and take a break don't go away Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four and say good morning to a former member of the Stephenville Town Council. That's Lenny Tiller. Good morning, Lenny. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing very well, sir. How about yourself? Oh, not too bad. Not too bad. So you and I have been going back and forth here for a little while and been looking forward to having you on the program. We know that back on the 11th of January, you resigned from Stephenville Town Council. You know, some of it was to care for your aging grandparents, but you're also talking about the relationship between yourself and Mayor Tom Rose. Elaborate for us. Yes, sir. Well, well, I'd like to start off, if I can, Patty, just giving you a little bit of background sure. on myself, because cause the mayor has, in, in my opinion, in the media over the last week or so, has had five or six different reasons why I left and can't seem to make up his mind. So I'll, I'll give you a little background. For four years, I lived in Fort McMurray. While I was there, I worked in oil and gas doing payroll and finance stuff, worked with safety departments, commonly worked with boards. I was on the district association of Brian Jean, who again was the leader of the Wild Rose Party. I was president of the Bay St. George Student Union campus for two years. One year provincially, went to Ottawa, went to Canada and Gatineau, fought for the oil and gas students that we had, and really put the province forward. I, I'm used to dealing with rules of procedure and how to act in these meetings. I was second vice president of the Lions Club locally. I'm a member of the Regional Western Service Board. Politics and, and procedure and how to act in a professional setting is, is something that's not new to me. I'm not just some guy that was elected off the street as sometimes the mayor would allude to as, oh, well, the three young people left council. But it was certainly the dynamic he had set up most of the time because there was always he's the senior, or and not just him, there was other members, but he would speak on their behalf. There was a senior council and a junior council, and it seemed like the senior council knew it all and should know it all, and we should be there to listen. And when I started speaking up in February of 2022, I believe it was, surrounding questions on the airports in a public meeting, well, shortly after that meeting, which was two or three days later, council actually called a meeting. And the whole sole purpose of that meeting was to try to correct me doing my role as a councillor. It didn't make any sense. One councillor stood up for me and said, this meeting doesn't make sense. But the rest of them got to go around the table one by one and take shots for speaking out publicly on what at the time didn't make any sense. Why was the airport being advertised as owned by the purchaser, but the town was trying to give taxpayer dollars to an airport that they said they didn't own anymore. 
So when the mayor refutes your claims, saying that you just simply didn't like being a councillor, so give us some examples of specifics about how you felt bullied or taunted by Mayor Rose or anybody else on council. Sure. So uh, to, to his comment, Paddy, I loved representing the people of Stephenville. We have some of the greatest residents. I'm sure you hear everybody say this, but we do. We, we have some engaged, active residents who care about their community that felt that they weren't being heard. And I was trying to bring their voice to the forefront, whether it be in committee or public meeting. There was lots of times where the mayor would actually utter the term, you're just a junior councillor. I've been here longer. I've never been questioned in this capacity. Why are you questioning me now? Things like expenses that were, were not pre-approved. And the Municipalities Act is pretty clear. Pre-approved expenses by the council are okay. The mayor doesn't get an expense account. He's no different than anybody else. But there was always a dynamic where the mayor and a few other members of council that were close to the mayor would know all the information, and the three new ones or the four new ones would be left out of knowing what that was going on. Then we have to make decisions. There were many times when, I'll, I'll give you the, the, the latest example. We were in the last meeting I attended was a committee meeting, and he told me that I wasn't supposed to go against the finance committee because I was on the finance committee. And I would say, well, I don't agree with the committee's recommendation, and I'm going to say it publicly. And he would try to, to intimidate you and belittle you into, well, you have no choice. You're on this committee. You have to agree. Well, when I put my name on the ballot, there wasn't junior councillor position that I ran for. I ran to be a councillor at the town of Stevenville. He put me on the finance committee. I didn't ask to be on the finance committee. But when I got elected to politics, it was to be the voice of the people, and that's what I tried to do. There were times that I had lifelong relationships with former mayors and councillors of the town of Stephenville, and I would go to meetings, and the comments would be made, well, you're just speaking on behalf of your buddies. You, you, there's no way you can know this. You're speaking on behalf of them. You don't have your own voice. And, Patty, it wasn't just me as a counselor. I, I can't speak for, for the other two of why they left. Um, but the staff at the town has been treated this way as well. And, and I, I would, it is my perception and my feeling that we are at the point now that occupational health and safety should seriously look at going into the town and not just interviewing current employees, but also former employees. We've lost three CAOs in over two years. We've lost a manager of public, I believe it was Public Works, who's now working for the city of St. John's. There's numerous times where staff are so upset that they have to go on sick leave because of the way things are being managed. Most of the fights we had was over process following a process. Process is what makes a, any organization work in a collective and collaborative effort. And that process has gone to the wayside for some reason to just complete anarchy. Lenny, do you think that the root of all of this is 
the fact that the mayor was on the airport authority board, you had voted against transfer of town cash for operating purposes to the airport authority in Stephenville. And then, of course, Mayor Rose was absolutely all in with Carl Diamond right off the get-go. So with your voting against that transfer of money, and whether it be back to the initial issue regarding those three parcels of land between the Stephenville Airport Corporation and World Energy GH2 and some of the confusing public commentary that came from that. So it is as simple as that. When those issues came to uh, came to bear, then all of a sudden you became a junior counselor. You became a problem. A hundred percent. If, if it, you were either all in or you were all out, there was never a concession. For, from my perspective now, Paddy, someone else might tell you something different. From my perspective, you were either in or you were out. You either liked the idea or you didn't. And and the biggest issue for the residents of the town of Stephenville that, that I've heard from was who does the mayor represent today? Is he the mayor of the town? Is he the spokesperson for the purchaser? Or is he the spokesperson for the airport? And when those lines got blurred, they got blurred a lot. And and you could even hear commentary in public meetings or, or, or go back through media reports where you didn't really understand in a moment where his interest was lying. I, I'm sure the mayor, and, and, and I've seen the greatest side of Tom Rose where he would give you the shirt off his back, where he'd stop everything he was doing and load up his truck with wood and give it to seniors. But I've also seen this other side when you're not all in, as he said in that article, the official opposition of council. Well, well, we all know politics, Patty. We all see the House of Assembly. We all see the House of Commons. If we don't ask the questions for the people, we do not have a democracy anymore. The, the, the whole premise of democracy is to ask questions, to be able to oppose, to try to make something better. If we're all just going to sit there and agree 100% of the time, we are not going to get the best outcome for the residents of Stephenville. We're not going to create the best dynamic for the staff because the staff at the town is not going to know what to do, and they're not going to feel comfortable. They're not going to know from day to day if they go to work if if they're doing their job correctly because they're not they're – not, how do I say it? They're, they're so nervous about what's coming next or what's going to happen. A lot of them are fearful when they're doing their job and then they're making mistakes. The town has some of the greatest staff I've ever seen and ever had the pleasure to work alongside with smart, intelligent staff. And I can tell you, Patty, although they can't come out and speak publicly, I'll speak for them. They are nervous. They are scared. They do feel like they're being mistreated. They're stressed to the max. And and it's not just about there's not being enough staff. It's they're not being treated properly. Because when they put opposition up, they're bullied and intimidated as well. Lenny, this is, you know, maybe a bit of crystal ball kind of stuff, but there's rightful cynicism and skepticism out there about the future of the airport because it's been an awful long time. Some extremely lofty promises have been made. Very little traction up to this point versus simply changing the name of the airport, dealing with some past liabilities and what have you. So what do you think happens next? Well, I, I, I hope the purchaser succeeds in, in his efforts. Um, the commentary that has come out about the naysayers in the public is, is, is ludicrous because at the end of the day, nobody told the purchaser to offer and promise what he promised. Nope. That was on him. That was on the mayor supporting those comments. I hope he can do it. I hope in 20 years there are drones flying around Steve Mill and there are commercial flights. I, I hope everything that he wants, he can do. 
but right now there's no evidence of it. Over the past two years, it's been promise after promise after promise, and, and nothing has come to fruition that we know of as a council. I do think and feel that the mayor knows more than he lets on to council about, but I can't really speak to that. Fair enough. Um, I, I, I do know that the premise of this, now whether it would have made a difference to council or not, was every debate we had on the airport was, well, we want to get it off our books. Yes, but we never followed the process. There was enough public money, Patty, put into that airport over the years that the logical thing to do would have been to follow the disposal of assets that the town follows. So although the town didn't own it and it was it was an extension, we had effective control of what they did because we were controlling the money. Yeah. So it, we, we, we had the control and could have said, you're going to follow our disposal of assets process. This is going to go to an RFP. The airport was never for sale. This was... I want to buy your airport, send a few emails to government, and everybody jumped on board. In a town, if somebody comes and says, we want to buy the industrial facility or land, we have an obligation as a municipality to put that out to the public and say, we have interest in this land. We're going to put it up for a request for proposal because we might be interested in selling or leasing it. The same thing should have happened to the airport sure. because it was the taxpayers' dollars put into it. It goes back to your comments about process. Just for purposes of clarity for the pending news story to be written in our newsroom, what were you mm-hmm. saying about bringing in uh, occupational health and safety? I, I, I think we're at the point now, Patty, where we, we've gone beyond just a regular political debate and making decisions as a council and the job of council and staff. I think we've gone beyond the point now where we've actually crossed that line or the council has crossed that line. The staff needs help. They don't know an avenue to go to. And I really do think that we are at a point now where there needs to be an investigation for bullying and harassment and intimidation, either on all the council, the mayor, whoever, just go in and be able to talk to the staff and let them know that somebody is listening, somebody cares, and to see what comes out of it. And if there is a finding that something is happening, then we can correct the behaviors that are happening. I'm not going to say the mayor needs to be removed. I'm not going to say he doesn't have the best interest of town at heart because I think in his own way he may. But I do think occupational health and safety should go into that town, interview the employees, interview the people that have left, to see what the culture is like because of my perception right now that it is very toxic and it has continued since I left on January 11th. Lenny, I really appreciate the time. I'm late for the news, but thanks for this and your candor. Uh, thank you so much, Patty. Take care. Stay in touch. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Former Town Councillor Stephenville, Lenny Tiller, break time, talk away. You're listening to a rebroadcast of VOCM Open Line. Have your say by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. And listen live weekday mornings at 9 a.m. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the Collectors Program Supervisor with the Archives and Collections Department at the Rooms Museum. And that's our friend Mark. Mark, you're on the air. Hi there, how are you doing? You are welcome to the program. I'm doing well, Mark. How about you? Good. I'm great too, thanks. I suppose I should add your surname. Mark Ferguson joins us here this morning. Uh, tell great. us about who's Walter Peddle and your relationship with the rooms. 
Okay, yeah. Well, there's so much I could I could talk about. Uh, Walter was a, a great, wonderful person and an excellent curator who worked with the Newfoundland Museum for many years, and he mentored many people, including me, when I just started with the museum back in the 1990s, I guess it was. And then later on, I worked with him on many different pro projects and field trips and stuff. But I think his major contribution was he gave Newfoundland and Labrador a very significant legacy, um, which all came out of his passion for the province's craftspeople and the kind of things they made, everything from furniture to mats, textiles, you know, the work of, of the people's uh, hand, you know, kind of the, the handicrafts. Um, and he spent his life, you know, exploring and researching and collecting those items uh, made by people from all over the province. And uh, he went on to kind of champion what he came to realize was a unique and distinctive style of, of country furniture or vernacular or folk uh, fur furniture. Um, and he described it as exuberant and innovative and 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 from this place and it stands alone you know and he, he proved this that it stands alone amongst you know uh, traditions of furniture making from all all over the world so you know he was so important to you know collecting and preserving the material culture of the province he he collected hundreds of nationally significant you know pieces of fur furniture uh, that became the core of our collection here at the rooms um, and the, including in 2007, uh, after he had retired for many years, he and his wife Sally made this incredible gift to to us. You know, with uh, providing us do donating 39 exceptional pieces that uh, that came from their own private collection, dating from the, the late 1700s right up to the, the 1950s. It's called the Walter and Sally Pedal Outport Furniture Collection. And it got a certification uh, as an outstanding collection of national sig significance from the Canadian Cultural Property uh, Review Board, which is now one of the highest recognitions that, that, a, that a collection of uh, items can, can get. So, you know, it's just an incredible uh, legacy and, and there's so much that, is, has, that he's helped preserve the, the culture of this place. Um, and, you know, he curated exhibits, he published books, he taught courses, he gave public presentations, always, you know, um, putting forward this, this stuff and talking about the people who, uh, who, 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 who made it. Um, the thing that really also struck me, we were working with him for years, off and on, different times, was that, you know, all this kind of stemmed from, he had this deep admiration and respect for, you know, the creativity, the resourcefulness, and the w willingness of people to kind of innovate and make really amazing stuff. Uh, but it was all stuff they were just making for their own lives, you know, in their own houses, whether it was, again, a hook mat or a piece furniture or part of a building you know he he he, he was just really uh, in in awe really of, of what what they did and always on uh, always you know looking to to them to find out why they did it how how they did it uh, what their what their tools were all those kinds of things anyway I said a lot there that's terrific so when Walter and Sally Pedal donated those 39 pieces to the rooms what's the status where are these pieces today and how many might be still on display 
Well, right now we have a, a, a number of them on display. I would say I was up looking yesterday at a, at the exhibit hall, and we've got, I would say, you know, ten or eleven large and small small pieces in our level four museum galleries, the Sonovis uh, gallery and the Eleanor Gill Ratcliffe uh, space, which is all on the fourth floor in on the museum side of the rooms, and you can see them. There's some large pieces that are kind of up in between the two floors in the gallery kind of on display and you can look at them from below and from and from above you get a look at some of those and then on the in the Eleanor Gill Ratcliffe gallery in the area we call the hearth uh, there's some lovely small wall boxes and 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 little items uh, mirrors a shaving mirror that Billy Wheeler made uh, who was a great furniture maker and boat builder from Keels, Keels Bonavista Bay. Uh, so there's some beautiful pieces there. Now again, uh, as I say, you know, we have hundreds of items that Walter, you know, preserved and collected and added to our collection and we can have them all on display. We did a, in 2008-2009, he, he, cur he curated a show that included most of those 39 items and a lot of other items he had collected in previous years and we did a full show of that we do our best to kind of get everything out but as you know there's so many stories to tell in in the province and um and so we we we, we try to rotate things in and out over time uh, but that's where you can see them right, right now those those pieces when it comes to being a curator, it's one thing if someone approaches the rooms and says, I have this photograph or an artifact or piece of furniture. But when you'd go out on trips with Walter to collect furniture, was it based on people telling you this is what I have? Or are we going to different parts of the province specifically because of you know, design influences and some differences regionally? I think it was a total combination of those things. You know, we often went out, uh, I, I probably went on three or four trips with him over the years, and often it was just like a, a fishing expedition. We'd go off and let's go and look around here, and usually he had some contacts or connections. We'd go, we'd we'd set up, we'd, we'd, we'd travel around, we'd knock on doors and say, hi there, you know, we're from the museum, we're doing work, we're looking for stuff. But Walter also had a really good, understanding of, of different places and different areas of the province and as you say different styles of uh, furniture coming from them often it came down to being focused on like a community or a place would have a, a, a significant person who was known for making uh, their fur for, for making stuff that was really interesting so for example in Conception Bay North uh, Henry William Winter from Clark's Beach is a famous guy who actually eventually sort of started a small factory but his work was really interesting and uh, I mean, combined all these different ideas and mo motifs and styles and in his work you know Walter I think that was one of the Walter being from the from Spaniards Bay that was kind of one of the first guys he, he, he came across who was a, a sig significant person he come to understand was making furniture for many years and his stuff was all over the place he had sold many pieces all over we've been we're still collecting now and then uh pieces by him uh though we slowed right down because we got such a fantastic collection built up but so anyway to get back to your question yeah we uh he often had an idea of where he was going and and knew what he was kind of lo lo looking for so there are definite styles and, and, and influences in different places that, that sort of uh, uh, come, come, come to the fore. And he would go off 
knowing that and be looking to find pieces from that kind of tradition. I remember, um, I, I never went with him to, to visit her, but Elizabeth Gale was a, a, a woman who made stuff up in White White Bay, and she had a really her own distinctive style and 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 influences. And he he loved her stuff, and he was always kind of on the lookout for it. It often she ended up she was mainly. She came into furniture making really just to furnish her own home, and she was she was unusual, but but not that unusual. Women often would would do uh, wood woodworking and and carpentry things on certain scales anyway. But um, he was he was always on the lookout for her for her her, her stuff, and we have a we have a small but but important co- collection of things that that she she made. And there's, you know, I'm not surprised to know there's distinct regional differences because that would go for quilts to hooked rugs to pottery to all sorts of arts and crafts materials used. So that's really fascinating stuff. Just before we run out of time, Mark, for people who are listening who'd like to contribute something to the rooms, what's the process? I know you don't want people showing up at the rooms for the sake of efficiency and evaluation. So if I want to bring forward a photograph or a piece of art or anything to the rooms, what, what should people do? Okay, well, that's that's a very good good question, and thanks thanks for asking. Yeah, right now it's 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 very true. We we would rather not have people just show up at the door with things to offer because that kind of is really complicated. It's really busy up, out front of the building. So our, our our steps are this: if if you are in, interested in donating, whether it's artifacts or documents or photographs or art, um, the starting point is to either email us, and here's the email: collection offers at the rooms.ca um, and or you can call uh, 757-8030 and that's where you would make your initial kind of inquiry offer. We will respond to the, call, the email or the call with, you know, uh, with for further questions. Hopefully in the email, if you can provide any information you know about the things you have, and especially even even better if you can get some pictures of those things into the e- email. That really helps us kind of assess, you know, what's going on. They will get back. We'll get back back in touch with you, discuss some more, and if it makes sense for you and for us to 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 move forward to acquire the things, we'll go on from 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 there. Mark, really appreciate you making time for the show this morning. This is fascinating stuff. I'm, I'm due for another visit to the rooms. Oh, great. I, I hope you can come on down and we invite everyone and anyone to come come, come on in uh, whenever. <laughs> we appreciate your time. Stay in touch. Thanks for doing this. No worries. Take care. Thank Take you. care. Bye-bye. Mark Ferguson is a collector of program supervisor with the Archives and Collections Department at the Rooms. Before we get to the break, mm-hmm. let's go to the, uh, pardon me, line number two. Bernard, you're on the air. Uh, yes, Patty. Uh, this is Bernard from Crosstown Express. Yes, sir. Uh, I was coming out from uh, Donovan's there, well, about a half an hour ago or more, and there was a ladder on the road coming up the hill between Paradise and Torben Road, say, on that stretch. Okay. So, obviously, you, no one's going to want to run over a ladder. Pardon me? No one's going to want to run over a ladder. That can do some pretty significant damage. Yeah, that's right. So describe exactly where it is one more time, Bernard. Uh, coming up the hill uh, from Paradise to Thorne Road on that stretch. 
So keep your eyes peeled, and whoever comes back to retrieve it, hopefully they do that carefully as well, because that's a pretty speedy area. Thanks for doing this and letting us know, Bernard. Uh, yes, I had to uh, swerve around it to... Or would have ran over, right? And, of course, swerving could be right into uh, someone alongside. So let's hope that ladder is out of there before someone strikes it. I appreciate the heads up. Yeah, and anyone that's going a bit faster, you know, they're going to maybe have trouble. No doubt about it. So eyes peeled to the motoring public in that area. Thanks for doing this, Bernard. Okay, buddy. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. All the best. All right, let's get a break. When we come back, Mike wants to talk about the Joshua Burke case. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Mike, you stay right there. We're going to give you ample amount of time because we're nudging up against the news. Immediate and positive feedback about the conversation with Mark Ferguson from the rooms. You know, the work they do to preserve and display things like furniture made here in the province is pretty great stuff. I mean, it's critically important. So I'm absolutely due for a shot down to the rooms, maybe a bite of lunch because the restaurant's also quite good uh, there. Just a couple of housekeeping notes before we get to the news. So we've had Graham Wood on the show a couple of times talking about the petition that they've got at the website that's called ourcommons.ca. It's where you can find a petition about the uh, the requests they're making of the federal government to expand and greatly expand the recreational food fishery days. So when you go on, and so this is from a, a listener who sent me an email. Just thought I'd mention this to you about the above petition, which is E4781. After signing, I received an email asking me to confirm my signature. I wonder how many people think they've signed the petition when actually they haven't because they didn't confirm in the follow-up email. He asked me to mention it on the show, so I'm doing exactly that. So make sure when you get that email sent to you, you go ahead and press confirm so your name is actually officially added to the petition. That's the last and the most uh, vital step to make sure your voice is heard on that front. All right, let's check in on the Twitter box for VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Also, yes, extensive conversation with former Stephenville councillor Lenny Tiller. And he said what he said, and it's his personal experience and his personal opinions. So, again, you know, I got a couple of emails say, boy, that was a pretty one-sided conversation. What does Mayor Rose have to say? Mayor Rose has been on this program many, many times, and he's more than welcome to join us again to offer any type of reaction or rebuttal that he'd like to on this show. Of course he is. This is not about we're only willing to tell one side because, as a matter of fact, that's the first time I've ever spoken to Lenny Tiller when Mayor Rose has been on a significant number of times, and he's welcome to do so because some of the big issues in the province would be regarding things taking place in his backyard. World Energy GH2, the Stephenville Airport, and all the rest of it. So absolutely, we're happy to have both sides of that conversation on. I'm not a both-sides guy, but when we have... Uh, for you know, commentary offered like Mr. Tiller did, then, of course, ample opportunity for Mayor Rose to offer his rebuttal. Absolutely. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Mike is next to talk about the Joshua Burke case. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Mike, you are on the air. How are you doing, Patty? Doing well, thanks. How about you? Pretty good, thank you. Good. I just want to speak on the news yesterday with that guy getting three years and three months. It's like, I don't know, it just blows me away. I don't know other one of the families, but I got to say that man, for what he done, definitely, definitely should have got more time due to the fact of awareness been out there over the years, probably forever, and mad and everybody else that's up against, you know, drinking and driving. And to me, for what he done, for whatever reason he done it for, whether it was an argument he got into that caused him to leave downtown, to head home or wherever he's leading and come back on the opposite side of the highway that actually took another man's life 
I would not want to be in his shoes. I wouldn't want to be in the shoes of the folks that uh, the deceased has left behind. I mean, that, that mental anguish and grief must be overwhelming, especially dying in those circumstances. Look, like I talked about off the top of the show, it just really doesn't feel like oftentimes the punishment actually satisfies the severity of the crime. And in this case, a man is dead. You know, and this is not the first time we've seen these types of charges result in these types of sentences. It just don't, doesn't seem to be good enough. And even the judge apparently yesterday was articulating his struggles with the decision. And even the Crown put forward this as a recommended sentence as well. But it just doesn't feel like it's long enough for what has happened. And Paddy, do you take back years ago? I, I can't really get the name in my mind right now. But you take the members way back. The young fella got killed down towards, I think, Baleen or whatever. Gentleman left, I think, the club and several, or probably at the club several times. And on the way home, he struck the young fella. I remember the story him. vaguely. Yep. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, to win the even what he got at the time. But to me, for anybody like this guy that went there with his pickup truck and did what he did that was like a loaded gun to me for what he done I don't and disagree somebody and not only that but what incentive is this going to put out to anybody else that's out there drinking and driving and take away his license for five years that man could get out look and move anywhere and probably still be driving forever in the day till, till he do, if he ever gets pulled in again and to me that five years of license that don't mean that don't bring nothing back to that family no, I it does. The, the law is going to have to change that. Listen, they're going to have to like, they're going to have to pay. They're going to have to serve the time for the crime, big time, big time. This won't happen anywhere else. I wouldn't say in any other province with their legislations and everything else that they got put in place. This do not send a message to anybody that's out there drinking. I can go out there tonight and probably have a few drinks, take my car knock down or kill somebody whether they're walking or in another vehicle or whatever and what am I looking at three years three months because it's an incentive there from the courts of what they just give this guy I think is ridiculous totally Totally. Yeah, a similar sentence was handed down when uh, young Hannah was killed, and uh, it was a street racing incident as opposed to a drunk driving uh, issue. There was a gentleman who was back in the news again, a repeated drunk driver, George Whalen, and he struck and killed a, an elderly lady on the highway. His sentence was eight years. The parameters for sentencing, I guess when you look across the board, the average sentence is somewhere between two and seven years, which seems very lenient, but there is the availability of life in prison with a drunk driving causing death conviction. So I don't know. When the judge talks about his personal struggles with the sentencing, it's a wonder that he was willing to accept that recommendation. Nor do I know why the Crown is willing to recommend such a lenient sentence in the first place. Absolutely. And, Patty, every other day we hear on the news of people getting pulled in, obviously, whether it's with drugs or anything else. I mean, for the most cases, those people are pulled in, and the first thing you hear, driving with a whatever license or insurance, this and that and everything else. I think the government needs to build this prison that's long overdue. That way, those people that do get caught, they don't get out, and they don't get to turn around and be paying their fines off and not doing any jail time and stuff build a prison and build it big enough that listen when you do the crime there's a place in there that you're going to do your time 
Mike, I think there's probably a lot of people nodding along in agreement. I appreciate your, uh, your patience this morning. Thanks for making time for the show. Oh, absolutely. Patty, have a good day. Same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, so, so we know the issue regarding the availability of virtual care, and it is being expanded right across the country. You know, there's still, still some lingering concern about Teladoc being the, uh, the company that's been brought in by the province to expand virtual care offering. And it's not just about getting the help you need in the comfort of your own home and not having to travel, but there are some built-in concerns. Let's go to line number five and say good morning to Dr. Todd Young, the man behind Medicuro and the Main Street Clinic in Springdale. Good morning, Dr. Young. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. So, Chris, in your office, <clears throat> pardon me, sent along a pretty short video clip, but it talks about the compilation of data and the selling of people's personal data when you engage with a virtual care offering. What do we know? Well, last night on the national uh, CBC uh, program, they did have a, uh, a, a story on the fact that uh, there was uh, some evidence, I guess, that from insiders in certain companies that uh, there's pharmaceutical sales and data collection, uh, there's a, a close-net relationship, and certainly that some of those companies are sharing that information uh, with pharmaceutical companies. So, for example, when you know, whatever is prescribed, different medications, uh, demographics, those types of things, it appears that those are the data uh, endpoints that are being shared with pharmaceutical companies. You know, when I saw it, first of all, it was like, you know, it feels so good to be on the other side, knowing that, you know, as a local company, we are the ones that are, uh, we, we definitely don't share any information and certainly don't partake in any of this. I think I've always said, you know, Medicare was about patients, not, uh, not uh, stocks or shareholders. It's not about, uh, you know, a profit-driven uh, initiative. It's about filling the gap for, for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. So it was a, it was a bit of an eye-opener uh, in one way, but certainly um, uh, we just want to make sure that uh, everyone knows that their, their information is safe with us, nothing is shared. Yeah, and so I guess the next question would be for the province is what exactly is in the contract to offer those protections? Because if we haven't even broached that issue with Teladoc, then we might not know. And I'm not saying that their purpose is to be as nefarious as some of those reports that were shared with me. But to add it in black and white in the contract to prohibit any of that type of collection and the sell of your information. Because all of a sudden then we know what happens. And look, data is extremely valuable. But when we're talking about healthcare, data should be absolutely absolutely protected in full, full stop. Absolutely. And again, I, I, I'm not uh, alleging anything with regards to Teladoc, but what I am saying is I agree with you. I mean, those protections should have been or should be and may ha- may are there in the, in the contract, but certainly and it, this now brings up another concern that we need to clarify. Yeah, and I guess that's easy enough to do. There's a bunch of things that are back on our radar for extended conversations, again, with the Minister of Health. So basically, how does it work? Because if I'm talking to the doctor and I say, for instance, it's an issue with my arthritis, so where's the value in that information being shared? So all of a sudden it's in the hands of a pharmaceutical company and they uh, target you directly, or where does the jeopardy lie? So I guess the jeopardy lies in that, you know, the large pharmaceutical companies, you know, a big part of their business is marketing and uh, and selling the drug and making money. So, you know, any data that they can collect from prescribers, so maybe, you know, people in Newfoundland only, you know, are prescribed more of a, a certain anti-inflammatory than, than others, 
and maybe then that gives them ammunition to be able to market uh, another another new product that they have. But that's the type of things that data is used for in pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, it's it's really hard to understand how some companies, when you talk about offering something under the guise of care, all the while knowing that you're profiting off of someone's pain, in addition to simply offering whatever tutelage is, is given in a virtual care setting, it, it's really quite something. And we will absolutely follow up with the province to ensure that that has been addressed in this co- contract with Teladoc. And you say that at Medicuro, no such information gathering and or sharing takes place. At zero. I mean, again, we uh, we make a very small uh, profit margin. Uh, I have always been committed to filling the gap for patients, offering an excellent service with excellent providers, uh, with uh, physicians who already work in Newfoundland and Labrador, so people that already know our community, our culture, our language, and uh, you know, lots of people that uh, people need to be reassured. Uh, you know, not everybody is being corrupted by uh, by profits. Uh, rather, uh, our care is a part of our model, and uh, and we're not going to veer from that whatsoever. It's truly remarkable this day and age how easily it is to be targeted by whoever's trying to sell you whatever. Even something as simple as going through a Google algorithm. One thing, you know, you go in and search up winter coats. The next time you go on, the first thing at the advertising bar is winter coats. So they are sharing it wide and far all the time. But I would imagine that, you know, we sign up for things so in such innocuous fashion and not really knowing what happens with the info. You can sign up to be a member or get updates from some retailer and the next thing you know that information has been sold so they're not only making money when you bought the pair of socks they're making money off your personal email inf- uh, contact info for instance and they're selling it to others because there's a reason why I get this spam uh, type of stuff because someone gave someone else my email address and yeah. I don't know how we put some real measures of control unless it's direct contractual uh, written uh, contractual obligations in this case between Teladoc and the provincial government uh, anything else you'd like to offer this morning Dr. Young while we have you no, I think your your points are, are very valid. Uh, you know, socks versus healthcare, though. Uh, certainly, the <laughs> fair. The the, the, the uh, you know the seriousness of it is certainly uh, is certainly different. I mean, healthcare is it's is almost sacred, isn't it? Uh, it's personal. It's highly personal, and so to know that that information is being shared by some companies, I, I think it's just uh, shameful. Uh, Dr. Young, as usual, we appreciate your time, sir. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. Dr. Todd Young with Medicuro. So that will be addressed with the province. Let's take our final break of the morning and the week. Zach, you're next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Zach, you're on the air. Uh, thanks for taking my call. No problem at all. Uh, just from uh, regarding the Tucker interview, and I'll make this quick, uh, just from the perspective of an American who's kind of independent, left-leaning, I think it's important um, to remember that the hardcore, die-hard fans of Trump are going to oppose anything that Biden does, no matter what it is. Therefore, the financial help America has given Ukraine is bad. Zelensky's bad. Ukraine is somehow the bad people in all this. Um that's why so many people in the states here are so excited to hear the Tucker interview with Putin. They think that they will be getting some real truth about what's happening there. And uh, it's a bit scary that one party here in America has found a way to make Putin a good guy in all of this just because they don't like Biden. 
Look, I, I pay some attention to American politics. It is overwhelmingly weird. And the divide I between believe, the parties is yeah. irreparable. Like, there's no going back. Yeah. Yeah, there's none. And I feel it's it's just, it's embarrassing that people take Tucker Carlson's a journalist here. And I think uh, it kind of feels like I'm losing hope in regards just to civil discourse and debate in the States almost. Like, I talk to people in Canada, and they're very willing to have a debate or a discussion about uh, maybe a difference of opinion on a certain issue but that's almost gone here in the united states but that's from somebody who lives in the smack dab in the middle of maga country uh that's why kind of all that excitement around the tucker interview is is the way it is so well i can say without even being specific about one politician or one party or another it's really unfortunate that we find ourselves in a time where if you are <clears throat> all in, 100% supportive of one individual politician or the party, is that all of a sudden, apparently, they can do no wrong on any front, ever. Right. They've got all the solutions, all the right answers, when in fact there's never been a politician or a party created that, that is a resemblant of. It just is not the case. So to be unwilling to accept the fact that someone who you're all in for, and in this case, and I think in large part, this is a Donald Trump-driven conversation, to pretend that he's as pure as the driven snow is just really hard to understand what people are seeing. Uh, I, I don't get it. There's not a perfect politician ever been created, nor will there ever be one. And the unwillingness to accept that there are flaws and shortcomings and lies and mistruths and stupid policy that comes from any politician on any side of the aisle, to not acknowledge that simple fact is alarming. Yeah, it is. And, uh, and the fact that apparently there's no good ideas that come from somebody else who may have a different political opinion uh, than yours are. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to throw my two cents in from for the Tucker interview about somebody here in the States. So, Please Appreciate you tuning in from Columbus, Ohio. Are you a Buckeye guy? Uh, I'm from Kentucky, so Kentucky Wildcats, but Ohio <laughs> State stuff is all around me. I can't escape it, so you kind you kind of watch the games here or there because you can't you can't get away from it. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the way people follow sports in the United States versus Canada is also vastly different. In some respects, maybe even a bit better because they're so passionate. But maybe Canadians are a bit laid back on a variety of fronts. Uh, Zach, thanks That's for your time this morning. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Anytime. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number five. Trent, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, buddy. Good talking today, as always. Thank you. Uh, Patty, I'm calling in today to talk about uh, curling in the province. Um, before I get into my main topic, I do want to give a shout-out to my daughter, Eve. Uh, her and her team are going to Gander this weekend for the U16s. And uh, Eve is only 10 years old, and her teammates, uh, one of them was 10, and the other two are 9 years old. So at that age, going to U16s, you know, they were they were really thrilled. The uh, they played yesterday. They were against the team from Port of Bass. They lost seven to two. But I was watching the game. Unfortunately, I never got to go out. But my wife was there, and she live streamed the game on Facebook. And uh, they scored two points. And the look on their faces when they scored those two points, it was like the it was like they won the whole tournament. Patty, it was unbelievable to see the joy on their faces. I love it. What so is this a provincial tournament or what are they playing in? It's, yeah, this is the U16 under. Uh, this is the under 16 provincial championships all across the province. So there's teams there from St. John's, Cornerbrook, Gander, Grand Falls, Port of Bass. So there's a there's a there's a lot of teams involved in it, which is great to see that there's teams in the under 16 getting involved with the current program in this province because um, 
I just spent a couple weekends ago, I just spent the weekend at the curling club here in Remax and um, watching the uh, the provincial playdowns for the men and the women's going to the Briar and the Scotties. And uh, to see the uh, the crowds that turned out to watch the uh, both tournaments was unbelievable for the support that's in the province. Well, I should say in St. John's in general, to see uh, the, the teams play. Uh, we, we need to get more activity uh, more, more productive uh, with uh, trying to get the, uh, the female game developed in the province. There was only three teams that took part in the provincial playdowns, which is kind of sad to see. You know, we need to try to develop the uh, the game a little bit more for the female end, and how they do that is beyond me, but they need to work on trying to develop that aspect of the game. Well, yeah, I mean, there was nine teams competing on the men's side and three on the ladies' side. Of course, Team Andrew Simmons going to the Briar. Guju will be there as Team Canada. Team Stacey Curtis going to the Scotties. And, you know, with the success of the Guju rink, I mean, it's a wonder curling's not even bigger than it is in the province. Because when the, you go back to their Olympic win, the streets were empty, the schools were closed. Right? I mean, it was just, the, it was the be-all and end-all for everybody. And then I wonder what it's going to mean with the loss of the Ballyhaley Curling Club and the sheets they had available. I don't think it felt like a huge problem this uh, this curling season, but remains to be seen what that impact will be over time. I mean, actually, I can, I can vouch for that because I spend, like I said, I spend a lot of time at the, uh, the Ballyhaley Club with my daughter because uh, she's in two programs and she's in the curling program after school on Wednesdays, she helped with the Little Rocks program on Saturdays, and they actually had to deny teams ice time this year because there wasn't enough availability with teams that came from the old Ballet Haley that wanted to uh, get, get in ice time. So that was a huge hit here, and there, there is no availability here. There's only one There's only one curling rink on the whole Avalon Peninsula. So, you know, I like to, I like to see that the, the city of St. John's, or I like to see CBS, or I like to see like some other place on the, on the Avalon. You know, build and get a you know a curling club. They're not going. They're not going to make millions of dollars. But you know, they get they get people out and there's it, and it's physical activity. And you know, this day and age, that's why a lot of you know kids this day and age they they lack the physical activity because they they sit down too much in front of the electronics and. You know, to get them, get them out the doors and get them involved stuff. You know, that's what it all comes down to. I appreciate you making time. Good luck to all hands, especially yours participating in the U16 Provincials. Thanks for doing this, all right. Trent. All right, buddy, buddy. Thanks for the kind words. I have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, bye. Last word goes to line three. Joe, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? Doing grand, Joe. You? Good, good. I just uh, want to throw out an event we're having this Sunday night with the Northeast Junior Eagles and we are hosting the Candlelighters Association on Sunday night. It's our last home game of the regular season before playoff starts and uh, all funds raised will go towards Camp Delight. Uh, so we're hoping to get a good turnout to help support this uh, this great cause. Absolutely. So what time is game time? Or is it throughout game the entirety of the afternoon or the evening? It will be during the game time. Uh, Puck drop is at 7.40. Warm-up starts at 7.20. Um, so, yeah, if you, uh, I know it's a Super Bowl weekend and all that sunny night, but uh, junior hockey this year has been fantastic. So if you want to watch a good game of hockey, uh, come on out to Jack Byrne Arena on Sunday night. Good luck with it. I got a soft spot for, uh, for the junior. Uh, thanks for doing this, Joe. Good luck with it. Thank you. Have You're a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. All right. Whew. Good show. Big thanks to all hands who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.